0: Hey, Hey, it's Conrad Thompson. And you're listening to 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm good, man. I'm just waking
1: up here. It's early got up at five o'clock to get ready for this and sucking down coffee. It's all good.
0: Well, I gotta tell you, I'm looking forward to this week, but, uh, first I guess we should talk about last week's episode, a lot of feedback from Starcade 1998. I heard from some folks who are in the wrestling business who really enjoyed us breaking down the finish and why that made sense. I still disagree. I would have liked to have uh, seen the powerbomb or even thought about this. Me and you haven't really talked about this in great detail, but I'm sure we will one day when we do a full DDP episode. Why not just have Goldberg lose to the diamond cutter?
1: I do know. It's another idea. You know? I mean, ideas are like assholes. Every, everybody's got one. Everybody can justify having it. Um, some are just bigger than others. Wow. And, 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 and that's a, that's an idea that, you know, it's, everybody has one. Some ideas are just bigger than others.
0: Speaking of big assholes. Have you seen these <laughs> bri- Oh,
1: That's funny. Well, that's
0: I think funny. you're going to like the transition here. Have you seen the Brian knobs photo that's floating around?
1: Oh, uh, well, you know. I don't you uh, you take a certain kind of twisted fucked up enjoyment in in torturing me. That, that's 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 a I don't know why you'd bring that up. It's early in the morning. I know that you're an hour later than I am. However, that's a really tough image to get out of your head, especially this time of the morning. I'm going to be stuck with that all day. Yes, I have, unfortunately.
0: Our mutual friend, uh Kid Chris, who is a radio personality, prank called Brian this past week and asked about that picture and uh It's hilarious. I can't believe that, you know, this is what we're doing, but this is what we're doing. We're talking about wrestling from back in the day and I got a ton of good feedback from Starcade 98. I feel like um people are sort of 50-50 uh should there have been a rematch? Did it make sense to have all the interference? What about the stun gun? What was the feedback that you got on Starcade 1998?
1: You know, I get two kind of buckets of, actually, I guess three, uh, three different buckets of responses, typically. Typically, there's, you know, a, a good percentage of the audience that agrees with whatever, you know, my position happens to be when you and I debate an equal percentage of that audience you know disagrees and and will stand by their criticism and critique of that pay-per-view and the finish of it no matter what it doesn't matter what you or i or anybody else could say they're gonna stick with that and and then you get people that are just i don't know they just want to be negative for the fun of being negative they i guess they get some kind of enjoyment out of that but in this particular case that percentage that third bucket was there was barely anything there you know most of the people like you said it fell down on one side or the other almost 50 50 you know i didn't pay too close attention to my twitter feed in that regard but i you know i do know just I, I, i guess by virtue of reading as many as i did it's about 50 50 and i to me that says perfect booking right I mean, I, I guess you, know, you could go the other way and say, no, but if you had 80% of the people that thought it was a great finish and only 20% disagreeing, then, you know, that, that's an argument. But for me, in terms of storytelling, in terms of keeping things interesting going forward and keeping the, the number of opportunities you can come up with to work with as broad as possible, I, think, I still think it worked. I think it got a lot of negative attention way after the fact when all the armchair quarterbacks came out of the, the woodwork and all the wrestling fans who were, you know, really passionate about this stuff, got on the chat sites and they all started dissecting it and taking all the knowledge they had amassed from reading, you know, online news, news sites and wrestling newsletters. They took all that, that wealth, that plethora of amazing knowledge and creativity and got together and decided that it sucked. And, 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 you know, the same thing kind of happened in 1997. I talked to people at length after that show on Patreon. You know, one of them is a big fan who was just adamant to how much he hated that finish. And we broke it down and he admitted, well, yeah, I was at the building and I absolutely loved it. I said, well, cool. You know, when did you start hating on it? He goes, oh, you know, years later when me and my friends would get around and talk about it. Well, that's kind of the same thing that I think that happened here in 98. It's easy to criticize it after the fact, but the emotion, the energy, the unpredictability of it, and even watching it back, the believability of it. It wasn't like, you know, we stuck them, you know, with, with something that you would buy at a Walmart for nine ninety nine to protect yourself against, you know, stray dogs. This was, this was a big cattle prod. The effect looked good. It was believable. Goldberg sell, sold it. Well, I don't know. I'm, I'm defending that one to the death.
0: Well, I'm looking forward to seeing you try to defend Starcade 1994 today because we're getting in our way back machine and we're going to talk about Brutus the fucking barber beefcake in the main event of the biggest show of the year. And I got to tell you Eric, I um I was pleasantly surprised this wasn't as bad of a show as I expected. Are you fucking high? No, I'm just I'm trying something different. I wanted to be positive.
1: Oh my, yeah, but but you got to be honest about it. You can't come out with that kind of fake shit. That show was horrible. Honest to God, I get up at 4.30 or 5 o'clock in the morning and I scour... The internet, I'm looking for the most interesting, humorous, bizarro stories I can find from around the world to have fun with because the news is too depressing and I don't like to watch it anymore. So I'm, I'm looking for something that makes me laugh or makes me feel good or, or gives me cause to be optimistic. And I get up you know, I'm, you know, it's. I get up and do this thing at six or seven in the morning is when I'm actually streaming. Um, my brain isn't functioning all that well. You know, it's it's rough getting through, it. I'm pounding coffee. I look like somebody just drugged me on the back of a horse to get in front of my microphone. But it's a fun thing to do. So I, but I said, you know, I got to do more. So every time I know what the podcast is going to be about, which I always do, you always give me plenty of heads up, and I, I'm gonna I'm gonna watch it rather than me just watching it in my office by myself with my dog. I'm gonna I'm gonna watch it on Patreon and break it down and take my notes. So when Conrad gets on. the you know the podcast to kick my ass. I'm going to be prepared, at least I can defend myself. It's not like he's going to be beating a, a baby seal on the beach of the Antarctic. I'm going to be ready for this. So I did it and I did Starcade 94. And honest to God, I've, I'm gonna I think I got PT, SD. SD you know, you know post traumatic Starcade syndrome. Oh. I mean, I'm <laughs> It's bad. It was so bad. And every time I thought, oh, this is okay. It's not going to get any worse than this. Fuck. It did. I mean, some of this shit. All right. I got it. I got to see. I'm scarred. Here's what you do to me. I came into this. I'm sitting here. I'm drinking my coffee. I got up early. Let me paint the picture for you. It's beautiful here in Wyoming, but I love the mornings. I love getting up about an hour before sunrise. It's peaceful. It's calm. I, I think about what I'm going to do for the rest of the day. My dog is sitting there with me. There's a smell of wood smoke and coffee kind of blended in the air. It's just a fascinating time to be alive. And I'm generally very, very optimistic. But I came up here knowing, as I turned on my computer, and I'm getting ready to do the show. I came up here knowing Conrad is just lying in the fucking weeds like a really hungry alligator and this little fucking puppy eric bischoff is going to step foot in the pond and that alligator is going to eat his ass that's the picture i have in my head of you right now in huntsville alabama you're the hungry alligator i'm the little puppy and i came in here knowing this i knew this was going to happen I told everybody last night on Patreon, it was going to happen. Conrad's going to kick my ass. I told everybody this morning in a tweet that I'm getting I'm, the calm before the storm in stark contrast to the fucking wood chipper treatment I'm going to get here in about an hour. I knew it. And what did you do? You opened this thing up by asking me if I've seen the picture of Brian Knobs ass. <laughs> and we haven't even gotten in to the, to the horrible part of this, but that's how you started me out. Now you're like luring the little puppy into the water, but he's already afraid to step near it. Fuck. All right. Go ahead. I'm ready. I'm ready. Now you got me all fired up. I'm ready for you. Let me have it.
0: What's great is there are worse places to go. That's not even the worst picture of Brian knobs floating around, but let's talk about Starcade, 1994, December 27th. Municipal auditorium right there in Nashville, Tennessee. Of course, we've already covered Starcade 96. Also in that building, you guys would have 94, 95, and 96 right there in Nashville. This particular iteration, the very first Starcade in Nashville, did 8,200 fans, roughly 7,000 paid for a $90,000 house, and it did a 0. 0.65 buy rate for a $1.68 million company gross. When the numbers roll in, are you pleased? Is this the number you were hoping for? Generally
1: pleased, yeah. I mean, at this point, again, let's let's contextualize everything. You know, I, th- I think I had been in charge for about eight months or a year. And when I say in charge as executive producer, um, it, it was still early. You know, we were still very much in a cost-saving mode, even though we just spent a lot of money on Hulk and we brought in a couple of his <sighs> associates. Um, nonetheless, there's, there was still a big emphasis on operational costs and streamlining everything. And we were really watching our dollars, but even in the short amount of time between the time Hogan got there and now, um, the indicators as we've talked about previously on these shows, you know, our, our relationships with our pay-per-view providers, all of a sudden we're getting better. Dates, you know, it's easier to negotiate for buildings. Um, advertisers, in particular, are talking to us in a different tone than they did just a year earlier. So there was a lot of indicators that made us feel good generally. Revenue was one of them, obviously, I and mean, in many respects the biggest one. But it was more of a long-term uh, measuring stick as opposed as opposed to the short-term, you know, month to month, year to year so revenue yeah we were we were very happy with it 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 represented growth it represented a positive indicator um but it was only one of a couple things that we were looking at at this time generally company was very happy
0: of course a lot of that is you know because of hulk hogan and hulk hogan has been the game changer for wcw even tony Schiavone would say that when hulk hogan came in wcw went to another level greater heights than they'd ever seen before The first big show, of course, was Bash at the Beach earlier this year, 1994, which we've covered in the archives. Hugely successful show, a landmark show for WCW in many ways. The main event was Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair. Of course, they would do a rematch at Halloween Havoc. And that was the Ric Flair retirement match. Well, now we're sort of trying to figure out where do we go from here without the proven act of Hulk Hogan versus Ric Flair. And somewhere along the way, you guys signed the Macho Man. And I'm sure we're going to break that down here. Macho Man is going to debut for WCW uh, right before Starcade on WCW Saturday night. And then we're teasing what's he going to do at Starcade? Is he going to shake the hand of Hulk Hogan or slap his face? Find out at Starcade. So that sort of tells us how we got here and the storylines from a, a 30,000 flight view. But one of the things I wanted to talk about is a behind the scenes happening that happened. Uh, Meltzer would write that on December 1st, you took over as office general manager and you're replacing duties that were previously held by Bob Dew, who's still sticking around with a VP title. So explain what that shift meant more for you, less for Bob and what those responsibilities were.
1: I've never, I've never held a title of general office, general manager, you know, other than, you know, the, the. Scripted one that I had in WWE, but while I was in WCW, I, that was I never had a business card that <clears throat> referred to me as a general manager. Went from executive executive producer to vice president to senior vice president to president. Was the you know the offices I guess that I held there. That being said, there there was a a uh, there were a lot of conflicts between myself and Bob Do. And and I want to make it really clear because there there's a lot of things I really liked about Bob Dew, on, on a very personal level and on a business level. He was as good. I mean, Conrad, you I don't know if you've ever met Bob. No. Um, he is the consummate salesman. I mean, you would if you met this guy and you watched him work, you would you would hold him in very very high esteem. Really good. Um, but there were other issues that we didn't agree on. <clears throat> And one of the reasons that Bob was so good is because he was a very political animal and and, and not in a nefarious, you know, power hungry kind of way. But he's one of those guys that would find a find a way to get consensus amongst as many different opinions as you possibly could. And, you know, you'd walk into a room arguing about something you'd walk out and everybody would be slapping themselves on the back, looking forward to having a martini down down the road at the end of the day. I mean, he was that guy so likable and all that. But that was also his flaw because he didn't like to make hard decisions. Right. And in 93 and 94 in particular, you know, we, we were looking at house shows so close. We were looking, as I said earlier in this podcast, we were looking at every expenditure, every strategy, you know, every dollar coming in, every dollar going out and trying to figure out if we're making the wisest moves, but no matter what the category was, whether it was marketing, whether it was, you know, even on the accounting side, you know, internal WCW accounting side, uh, you know, how are we handling, you know, our, our local advertising for arenas you know Who's promoting what arenas in what part of the country? We, we broke everything down. Um, and we looked closely at house shows because it, it was a huge, huge financial pit. And when I first – when I became executive producer of the companies we've talked about before, I'm not going to beat it to death. My, my sole responsibility and authority was defined within the walls of television production. Like I had a lot to say about you know how bright the lights were, or you know what an entrance looked like. I had zero to say about creative or talent issues, hiring, firing, and that type of thing. That was Bob's area. Now Bob didn't handle it directly. He had Oli underneath him originally, um, and others. But um, my point being that my my influence, my input, began to gradually start to expand. As some of the moves I was making, Disney being one of them, Hulk Hogan being another, you know, saving money in a lot of different um, operating units within the company and, and really making sense out of what we were doing financially, you know, whacking the hell out of the travel budget, which was another giant money pit for WCW that nobody never ever knew about. And here's what you'd only get this kind of detail um, if you buy me a couple beers someday, you know, driving down the highway when I have nothing else to think about but this period of time, or <laughs> if you read, you know, Guy Evans' WCW Nitro book, it really goes into to this kind of detail. But Bob oversaw live events. Eric oversaw television. Bob oversaw live events, marketing, promotion, talent, all that. Eric, Eric oversaw television. Once Eric started having – I'm talking about myself in a third person. This is fucking cool. Once Eric – started having some success, all of a sudden Bill Shaw would, would, and I'm going to go back to me now, <laughs> Bill Shaw would call me and invite me to meetings previously that I wasn't really part of, including some of these decisions that were being made in those areas that fell outside of my purview as executive producer. That's when the... I don't want to call it a power shift or jockeying for position because it wasn't outward. There was no, at least not on my part. And I don't think Bob ever looked at me as a threat to, to replace him. Uh, We didn't have that kind of relationship and I wasn't that kind of person. Actually, It, it wouldn't have occurred to me. But as I got invited to these meetings and I'm listening to people, you know, the Sharon Sedellos and the Gary Justers and the Rob Garners and, you know, the Mike Webbers and all, you know, these people sitting around, you know, talking about their their units, their, their business units, I'm thinking these people generally don't have a clue or a plan. And I didn't say that out loud. I didn't raise my hand and, and shoot anything down. But as I'm listening, the more I'm listening, the more I'm realizing how bad this hole is you know it doesn't matter if i can save 10 percent on lighting over the course of the next 12 months if this idiot's you know losing money every time every time he goes out the door and decides well i know how to fix that i'm just going to go out the door more often like if you know if you generate a bigger gross number somehow that solves all your problems well if if you're if you're generating and this is what bob do was was Putting forward as we were trying to figure out how to balance our budget, and how to, you know, try to eventually get to that break even point, which was the primary goal. Um, I'm listening, you know, I'm, I'm, I come in and, you know, and my staff would put a lot of this together. I didn't have any idea how much, you know, rigs cost, you know, and in Poughkeepsie and things like that. So I relied on David Crockett and Craig Leathers and Keith Mitchell to really drill in based on all their experience and figure out how we could save money doing what we were doing. And I'd come to those meetings and I'd have my, my plan and that my team put together and I was responsible for, but I'd sit and I'd listen. Okay. Now we're house shows, you know, huge budgetary problem, Bob, how are we going to fix that? This that would be Bill Shaw who was effectively running the company at that time, and Bob's answer was, "Well, look, you know, here's the, here's the problem. You know, we lost eight hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and I'm just picking a number out of thin air. We lost eight hundred and fifty thousand dollars. You know, r- running house shows last year, we ran one hundred and eighty of them, or one hundred and fifty of them. So this year, we're going to grow that revenue number by running two hundred and twenty shows." Now, you know, I'm, I, I suck at math. You know that by now. I don't, I don't, if it's got numbers attached to it, I try to stay as far away from it as I can and, and find people who are good at it to figure it out. But even I knew that that was a colossal, f- 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 colossally fucked up way to look at it because their, their challenge was they just couldn't draw. That was the problem. And that's, that's the problem that should have been addressed. And it was to a certain degree because the nature of, especially WCW at that time, and I think generally across the boards, if ratings are down, you know, from a talent's point of view, well, it's either the booker's fault or because the company's not promoting the show right. It's certainly not my fault. It's got nothing to do with me. It's it's if if I'm a wrestler in WCW in 1993, 1994, and the ratings are ugly, and I'm on the phone talking to my friends about it, <coughs> Dave Meltzer, and and everybody's complaining about it. If I'm talent, I'm gonna say, well, it's that guy's fault. I mean, it's it's you know, it's Eric Bischoff's fault. It's Bill Shaw's fault. It's Ric Flair's fault. The Booker. It's Dusty Rhodes' fault. The Booker. You know, it's not me. You know, and, and if and if they don't feel like they can feed the heat to the Booker whoever that was at that time, I hate to use that term, the head writer, the head of creative, if they can't blame that person for whatever reason, then they'll go, well, you know, this company would just market their show properly. I mean, Vince is a marketing genius, McMahon. If they would just do what Vince McMahon does it, everything would be fine. (laughs) But, and it was some of that going on. You know, Bob Dew would kind of point at the television ratings and, of course, I would point at the talent. And it was all kinds of mishmash going back and forth. But the bottom line was my approach to it – and this is when I started really getting involved. My approach to it was with, no, Bob, um, the answer is shut down live events. And I'm pontificating here, Conrad, because this was a really, really – this was a pivotal moment for me th- this period of time when I was – arguing to shut down live events because we we were losing money and had no plan to solve that problem the only plan was just do it more so what when i that's when i raised my hand That's the first time i stood up and said no we got to do this differently we i advocate that we shut down house shows and that means cut cut back on talent because we don't need so much talent number one cut back on travel because we don't need to jump on a fucking airplane to fly to a small town and lose money we can just stay home It'll be better in the long run. Um, that was my position. And, of course, the, the the counter to that from Bob Deuce's point of view was, oh, yeah, because you just want more of our overall budget for television production. And I would say, yes, Bob, that's true. Because my belief, and this is where I – was kind of like the parting of the political Red Seas inside of WCW at this time. My, my contention was – if and this is going to sound cornball, and it is – If you build it, they'll come, meaning if you build your audience, if you can get your audience up, if people look at your product as entertaining and interesting and they want to become a part of it, if you can accomplish that on television, you can eventually get back into the house show business. But if the prevailing perception um, and buyer's decision-making process reflects the fact that WCW house shows suck, they can't even give tickets away, there's no way I'm buying one. That's what we were faced with. So to, make, to fix it, my approach was burn it to the ground, start over, go on hold, don't do house shows, put all your money into TV. That's when Bob and I – going to the original question, which you probably forgot by now. That's when Bob and I started banging heads, and Bill Shaw made the decision – Um, And Bob was well-liked within Turner. I mean very well-liked at at the most senior levels of Turner Broadcasting Management. So there there was no way he was going to get fired and there was no way he was going to go out the door embarrassed. Um, Too many people liked him for that. So there was a gradual transition of power. It was known between Bob, Bill Shaw, and I that eventually I was going to be taking over that spot but not until Bob found a place to land. But there was no official title change. I wasn't made an interim general manager. There was, it was nothing that um, subtle. You know, it, was, it was just we all acknowledged Bob was going to move down the road eventually You know, within the next few months, and I'll be taking over that position. So it, it, everything got easier after that.
0: Looking for a great Mother's Day or Father's Day gift idea? I was, and I found it at Paint Your Life. With Paint Your Life, you'll get a hand-painted portrait created to fit almost any budget, and it's a great gift idea for your mother, your father, or both. You say Paint Your Life transforms your photos into a one-of-a-kind beautiful hand-painted portrait created by professional artists. You upload anything you can imagine. You can even combine photos. You'll pick the artist, the medium. You can even customize the frame. And you can receive your painting in as little as two weeks. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at paintyourlife.com. And there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money's refunded, guaranteed. And right now is a limited time offer. Get 20% off your painting. That's right. 20% off and free shipping to get this special offer. Just text the word weeks to 87204. That's weeks to 87204. Text weeks to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details I love those little details. And that's why I enjoy doing this show with you is, you know, the name of the show is Starcade 94, but we're going to talk about everything that's going on and that type of stuff. You know, if we're not going to hear it here. Where are we going to hear it? Let me ask this. Here's another little tidbit that was reported that we've never really talked about a lot. Quote, WCW supposedly bought WWF's television time slot away in the St. Louis market and is looking at doing a pay-per-view there early next year. Chat me up about television at the time. I know you're uh, involved in that process. Um, when you're buying television time in 1994 away from the WWF, what would that look like?
1: Well, you know, knowing, knowing now what I know now that I didn't know then, that would have looked like a really bad decision, um, first and foremost. But, you know, I didn't know it then. That was, you know, Rob Garner. Well, and Rob was a, Rob was good. He was, he was one of the good guys in WCW, uh, in, in management, um, smart experienced, knew the wrestling business, had great relationships with a lot of the market, you know, general managers and all that. So he was, he was good, but that was that was a decision that would have been made in syndication. What would that have looked like? That would have looked like a cash commitment of, you know, I would, you know, I'm simply guessing because i I wasn't in that business at that level back then. But I would say forty-five, four to $5,000 a week for an hour. Wow. Which isn't, bro, it's not that much. I mean, that's what that's how infomercials survive today. That, you know, you go back and, and you think about it. And, and here's the other thing. Now, this is, here's the math that would go into this, Conrad. I think you'll appreciate that. Somebody had to make an, you know, analyze that opportunity. Is it worth whatever the number was, we'll call it 5,000 a week just for discussion. Is it worth 5,000 a week for WCW to buy that time slot? The analysis would look something like, okay, what percentage of U.S. household markets does the St. Louis market represent? Let's just say it's 5%. It's not, but let's just say 5%. Okay, if we added that 5% to our total cumes, which means the total, the gross number of what all of our shows do Saturday, you know, WCW Saturday night on TBS, the main event on TBS on Sunday, you know, our two or three or four syndicated shows, you know, whatever, whatever we've got on television, you you take all of those ratings that all of those shows represent, you throw it all into a big bucket. How much added value do we get by bringing in, a highly rated, highly viewed, which probably was ABC, CBS, NBC network, I'm guessing, or strong, local, independent at the time, how much more value do we get from our our advertisers by adding that market? So if it costs us $200,000 a year, can we we increase our ad sales by virtue of that one decision by $220,000 a year? Because if we can you know, we're making 10% on our investment. We're, we're, we're increasing the opportunity to eventually do house shows. That's a good decision. But if the decision was it cost $5,000 a week to buy the market and it really doesn't add any value to our overall ad sales profile, then it would be a horseshit decision. My guess is it was the latter. My guess is it was a bet based on Okay, you know, if we add this market, you know, we're going to increase our viewership. It's going to look better to advertisers. So there'll be kind of like an anecdotal benefit, but not a direct one. Um, And, you know, it's a big pay-per-view market. Wrestling's got a lot of history. After all, that's where Jim Hurd came from. I mean, there'll be. (laughs) That's a joke. I
0: heard. I heard.
1: All right. Well, fucking laugh, will (laughs) (laughs) you? Don't be shy. Don't be shy. But you know, if, if the decision was made based on those kinds of long-term questionable logic, um, parameters, it would have been a bad choice. And I do think it was the latter.
0: How much of it is a decision that makes sense because it's a WWF station. You get, you have so many former WWF stars, including the biggest star they ever had Hulk Hogan. He's on your show now. So maybe there is, uh, some strategy to hey, we've got some of their top stars and arguably the biggest star in the history of the business, and you know we can hurt their business and help ours at the same time. That has to be a factor, right?
1: Um, in a way, I mean, nobody. And see, this is I'm I'm not questioning the, you know, you're you're I'm not challenging your question or. Or trying to make it sound like it's not an, an important, valid one because it is. But again, you know, we're looking back now with, with, with the things that we know now. You know, one of the things that we know now is there was, you know, Monday Night Wars and there was this big competition, and this jackass Eric Bischoff would come out and tell everybody you want to put Vince McMahon out of business and blah, 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 We we know all that now. That's history, right? But in nineteen ninety-four, none of us were thinking like that. None of us were thinking. Let's hurt WWF. Let's try to figure out a way to become number one. That would happen later, but at this point in time, in in, in you know October, November, as we're building the story going into December, at sometime in 1994, when Rob Gardner made the decision to acquire that that St. Louis market, nobody's thinking. Nobody's, and probably including Ted Turner's at that time, was anything but. How do we just survive? How do, we, how do we increase our, our position in the marketplace? Nobody thought about competing with the WWF. Now, you're right to point out, well, if that's true, then why are we hiring all the talent? First of all. Hulk came to us. We didn't hire Hulk Hogan away from the WWF. And it's a, it's a small, nuanced, often argued position, but it's important contextually. Hulk Hogan came to us. Randy Savage came to us. We didn't – nobody had a strategy of let's go get all the WWF guys. It was happenstance. We We never thought we could get Hulk Hogan. We never thought he would ever become available. There was no discussion about it before it happened. It was spontaneous combustion. Same with Randy. All right. But what we did, now, this is germane to your question, I think, or your point. What we did realize once we had Hulk Hogan and once we had Randy Savage and some you know once we got Brutus the Barber Beefcake oh my god everybody was scrambling how do we take advantage of this phenomenal fucking opportunity Brutus the Barber Beefcake he's been on WWF television forever everybody knows the barber we've got to go out and we've got to increase sales we've got to exploit this life-changing opportunity that discussion never happened but we did start realizing that wow we've we've got a pretty good sizable you know number of talent here or or size roster here that was formerly wwf how can we draft off of their success right how how can we pick up the pieces it's really no different and i don't mean any because i love what you and bruce are doing on your live tours i think you guys are fucking rocket scientists of of entertainment but we're
0: following wwe pay-per-views when we do. But right Yeah, yeah you're
1: you're drafting you know, you're, you're, you're exploiting and taking advantage in a positive way, by the way, because I think you make their product more interesting uh, along the way. Everybody wins. But still, you're, you're drafting that, that wave of success. That's how we looked at things. Okay, we've got Hulk Hogan, we got Randy, we've got Bruce, the Barber Beefcake, an earthquake. What do we do? Let's draft off of their success. Let's make some decisions and choices that might allow us to grow based on some of the audience that may come our way that we don't already have and and increase our, our audience base. That's the logic.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the Omni Thanksgiving show. It feels like Jim Crockett promotions, WCW, Atlanta wrestling, it's a staple and the Omni Thanksgiving show is actually canceled the Friday before the actual event. So only a six day lead time because there's only 285 tickets sold for the show and somehow, and only WCW could do this. Advertising continues for the show, even though it's been canceled. The idea of this not happening, you know, an omni Thanksgiving show, it feels like a no brainer at this point. Is this because the, the product has just evolved? I mean, everybody's in a down period, both the WWF and WCW, or for those old school, Southern traditional wrestling fans, is this no longer the WCW that they grew up with? I think it's a combination of
1: both of those things and and more. Again, I'm 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 trying to figure out different ways to say this without sounding like I've I've been saying the same thing over and over and over again. But when when you at WCW in in '94 in November, you know Thanksgiving in '94, by that time we had been giving away tickets for so long that we preconditioned the local market audience to know there was no reason to buy anything. Right. Because if we don't buy them, they'll give them to us. And and it wasn't just oh we did that once or twice for shows that you know were suffering or there was a you know there was a ever a specific reason for it. It was standard operating procedure. It was fucking protocol. And rather and this is a perfect example of the mindset that that lived in the live event division. And you know I'll name names here. You know Bob Doo, we've talked about. Uh, Gary Jester. Gary Jester was criminally responsible I'm, I'm using that in an entertaining way um, not not literally figuratively but um, he not not literally criminally responsible but Gary Jester was a major part of a lot of those fucked up booking decisions with Bob do Gary Jester was the guy that booked the buildings Okay, so he supported it. Why did Gary Jester support going out and losing money every time we walk out the door and then finding this magic calculator that would suggest, well, if you just increase the number of times you lose money, you actually make money. Right. I mean, that sounds like government. You know, I know we're losing $100 million a year. How can we how can we? Change that, oh well, we'll lose two hundred million dollars a year. We'll spend twice as much money and that'll work. That that was the you know, Gary Jester was very much involved in that, along with Bob Dew. A guy by the name of Don Sandifer. Don Sandifer's not a name that you're gonna hear too often. Uh, when people start talking about the history of WCW, because it, number one, he was Bob Dew's buddy. He kept his head really low. He never, he very seldom came out of his office unless he absolutely needed to. Um, he, he and it, it wasn't a bad guy, but he came from some other, uh, you know, like the Harlem Glo- Globe Trotters or some other form of, of live event entertainment. And Bob brought him in, and together these two guys were like buddies. They were tight. And and Bob didn't want to challenge Don. You know, Gary Jester – I think Gary Jester actually reported to Don at that point. Um, everybody was just going along in their merry way. But it, what was the question? Fuck, I forgot. Well, That's a challenge of going into this granular detail shit. As I, go, I go so far off track, were, I can't get back on.
0: Well, you, you were – Shitting on Gary Jester specifically, but the, the, the whole conversation came up about you guys canceling the Omni Thanksgiving okay, show. Oh, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. That, so the point is, and I, and it wasn't shitting on Gary Jester. This is a fact. Just like you dump on me, and sometimes I have to dump on myself, and sometimes I just have to take it. it facts are facts, and people can conveniently forget, change the narrative, or pretend it never happened. But Gary Jester was right there in the middle of the worst decision-making processes in WCW early on. Very early on, long before I got there. So, again, this is context. But those poor decisions included for years giving away tickets. You've conditioned the marketplace. It doesn't matter if they're, if they're saying tickets cost $30 for a ringside seat. No, it won't. I'll get mine for free because about a week before the show, they're going to start giving them away at every local radio station that's willing to do it. That's why we canceled it. That's why business was down. Business was was down across the boards for WWF. Certainly, Business was never good for WCW, so I don't know if it was down or just down worse. But, yeah, the market, the wrestling market in general, was dissatisfied and just uh, uh, not engaged. And on top of that, we had preconditioned our audience to not care because it was free.
0: I want to ask you about Gary Jester because he's a name that – you know, we hear a lot as wrestling fans and I've had the pleasure of meeting Gary a few times at ring of honor shows. And even came to a live show that Tony and I did in Atlanta. He's always treated me like gold. Great guy. I know a lot of guys, um, personally who really, really think highly of him. But when your book first came out, you took some pretty stiff shots at Gary. And I've always wanted to know, did you guys have a personal falling out? Because even now, when you talk about Gary, it sort of slants negative.
1: I'd never had a personal falling out. I always got along pretty good with Gary. You know, Gary here Gary and Jim Barnett were cut from the very same cloth. And by that I mean politically. Jim Barnett survived as long as Jim Barnett survived, especially because he was an openly gay man back in the whatever 50s and 60s and 70s, you know, and it was successfully promoting around the world. I mean, you know, when I look at, you know, people like Jim Barnett and and others, uh, Pep Pat Patterson, who survived, not only survived, but really um, made a name for themselves back in the 60s and the 70s when everybody knew that, you know, they were gay. I have nothing but admiration for them. Because, I, I you know, I, I, I can only imagine. I can't put myself, obviously, in someone's shoes like Jim Barnett or Pat Patterson. But I can certainly imagine what that must have been like. And to be able to overcome that is something that I think is admirable. That being said, there was a political side to Jim Barnett that was – so Machiavellian and dark on the one side, the, the operating side, but there was a sales side of of Jim Barnett's political um, apparatus that was so sophisticated, he was dangerous. That's why he survived as long as he did. And, and Gary Jester was like Jim Barnett light in that respect. Very, very, everybody liked Gary. Gary always had a smile on his face. I mean, there was times when he would walk around the audience or walk around the office and just by himself, and you'd see him walking from one end of the office to the other, and he's just got this village idiot smile on his face, which is not bad. You know, if you're happy and things are good, you know, you should smile. You should look for a reason to smile. I do believe that. I'm not being funny or trying to be. That That's a great thing. But when you have that same look on your face, you know, 12 hours a day going up and down the halls when there's nothing really, you're not talking to anybody. You're not hearing a joke. You just got this funny smile on your face. That was Gary Juster. And he was generally to your face, a positive guy. I will say, I do believe you've asked me, you know, this before. And I've, tended to to shy away from the question or tried to avoid it. You know, were there people who I knew were talking to, you know, certain dirt sheet writers and leaking information or, or discussing things that were really inappropriate. Um, I would put Gary Jester at the very top of that list. So there were certain, th- and I knew this about Gary. I couldn't prove it. I, if, if I would have known for sure, I would have fired him. I never did fire Gary, I liked working with Gary. Once Zane Breslov came into the picture, uh, because Gary was smart enough, again politically astute enough to know that he couldn't he couldn't work his you know magic charm uh, and political savvy wouldn't wouldn't hold up to. A guy like Zane, because Zane was a decision maker. Zane, you know, could look at two situations and analyze, you know, the best of the two opportunities, you know, in in light light speed compared to the deliberative, deliberative process that <laughs> Gary and others took. You know, Zane, Zane was zeroed in, laser focused on the money and had the experience that Gary didn't have. Zane Bresloff brought he, with him relationships with major arenas around the country where Gary Jester was working with the same exact arenas big and small well medium and small that he had been working with you know when he when he first cut his teeth in a wrestling business he was working he was making decisions based on familiarity and relationships and not on good financial uh, a, a good financial basis Zane changed all that and Gary being as smart as he was politically changed with it and, and after that, I really got along with Gary pretty well. I knew what he was. I, I knew what made him tick. But it wasn't dangerous enough to me or, or uncomfortable enough for me um, to worry about because we were making the progress I wanted to make once Zane came in. I hope that explains it or at least puts it into context. But no, I don't have and I still don't. If I saw Gary today, I'd be happy to see him. I saw him about a year ago at a convention and you know, we smile. <laughs> he had the same smile on his face. That's how I recognize him. Uh we, we smiled, we chatted for a minute, so it was nice to see each other and he, he moved on down his way. But when he was in WCW, no, we never had any falling out. I just tend, you know, in my book you know, in, in interviews, certainly on this show, I do my best to explain my perception and point of view of that time. And that was my perception of Gary.
0: Well, here's what you wrote. Gary Juster in particular was in my opinion, the most ineffective, untalented individual I'd ever had the misfortune to work with. He'd been with the company from day one, but his only claim to fame was being a great politician. He was a protege of Jim Barnett. And the only real skill Gary developed was being an ass kisser but he was occupying a position that was critical to our success or lack thereof. So that's the reason I said, damn, what's he got against
1: Gary? Well, you know me by now. That was the truth. I mean, you know, I, I didn't, I mean, I could have said worse things about him. And and if if you really, you would really want to get me going, let's keep talking about Gary. Just we'll spend the rest of the show talking about him, but you know he was what he was and what i wrote in the book is, you know i'm glad you glad you read what i wrote but it's consistent with what i just laid out to you wasn't a, i didn't dislike him personally i just recognized him for what he was
0: well I'm sure he's going to hear this. Uh, appreciate all the love, Mister Jester. <laughs>
1: Let's talk about. Hey, Gary, I love you, brother. Good luck. Ring of <laughs> Honor's doing great. I'm proud of you. I'm proud of anybody who spent, you know, their entire adult life in the wrestling business and found a way to survive. My hat's off to you. And enjoy the holiday, my boy.
0: Oh my gosh. All right. So let's <laughs> talk about an idea that was kicked around with Jacques Rougeau to run the Montreal Olympic stadium, which I think is unbelievable. When you guys are canceling shows for poor ticket sales, there was at least rumor and innuendo floating around Montreal, uh, in Les Journals, uh, where they talked about Rougeot perhaps main eventing a show against Hulk Hogan for the WCW world title. Of course, Rougeau at the time is with the WWF, but he's saying he would gladly leave to come do the stadium show, blah, blah, blah. Ultimately, it doesn't wind up happening. Did that ever even get past the boys talking about it? There's no chance you guys were considering running a stadium show, right?
1: We had been approached. Uh, Sharon Sadello had been approached. She was ahead head of marketing. I don't know why it came in through her. Um, maybe because of pay-per-view promotion or marketing or something. There was a reason for it. I I just can't imagine what it was. But she actually came to me because Rougeau, Jacques had approached her somehow. Uh, Maybe it was through Mike Weber because a lot of people had that contact to Mike and Mike reported to Sharon. Um, But, yeah, there was a discussion. And, it's you know, again, my mindset at that time was, Fuck, I don't want to do any more house shows. I don't want to ever do another house show again unless there's a television camera's rolling and there's a reason for it until we can actually make money doing it. So, it, it yes, it did come up. The details of how it came up are cloudy at this point. I think they were murky to begin with, which is probably why. But, yeah, we talked about it.
0: It is interesting to me that, you know, we're talking about how bad business was. It is so far better than the end of 93. It's not even funny. Your average attendance in December of 93, 640 fans by December of 94, your average attendance is 2,970 fans. Now, a lot of that to your point is you're scaling back on running some of the house shows. So, uh, when you do run an event, it is a bigger event and more folks are going to come out your average gate. It goes up 599%. You go from $6,720 at the end of 93 on average to $47,000 at the end of 94. Ratings on the other hand are down a little bit. And that has some folks worried when the rumor mill starts that maybe TBS might be a buyer for NBC. And if TBS could acquire something like NBC, would they even be interested in a money losing property like WCW? Was there any sort of concern internally in the office? The Chinese whispers, as we like to say here on the show about what if they buy TB TBS buys NBC, how would that affect us?
1: I, I call them little birds like on game of Thrones. You know, we made this reference before, but you know that like that eunuch that that has his, his little birds that report back to him all the goings on from all the different camps and families. And then this guy parlays that information and, and uses it for political leverage. That that probably better describes the Chinese whispers or the little birds that were going on at this time in, in Turner and WCW especially. Um, here's the funny part. It was exactly the opposite of that. Ted Turner, if you know anything about Ted or you read anything about Ted or you watch any documentaries or anything about him, his goal was to buy a network. He tried to buy CBS at one point. Um, One of the reasons that he bought the MGM film film library, and there was many, this is not the only one, was not not too um, detached or detached from his goal of owning a network and owning the content that goes on it. So, yes – Ted w- was making noise about buying a network. That's what his goal and his vision was. We all knew, I knew, you know, and I again, want to really be clear. I never talked to Ted Turner, at, especially at this time. You know, my boss was Bill Shaw. Bill Shaw talked to Ted Turner. So if I had to get something in front of Ted, it would go through Bill. But I was close enough to hear what Ted Turner was thinking about from Bill as it related to WCW. So I was one step removed. And Ted's plan was to push WCW and use WCW because Ted always believed that wrestling brings eyeballs and audience to networks. And, you know, Vince McMahon has in his own way, you know, proven Ted, right. If, if, if that, I, I know Vince wasn't motivated by Ted's vision. I'm not suggesting that, but Ted believed that wrestling will bring the masses, which is why he committed to it, why he kept it on the network, even though everybody else around him, key decision makers, you know, wanted to pull the plug and had every good reason to do so. Ted steadfastly stood up and said, no, that's my baby. We're keeping it. He believed the same thing would be true, which is one of the reasons, by the way, and I'm guessing this now, I don't know this. But if you go back and look at, you know, the decision-making process, and as we learn from from uh, Guy Evans' book, WCW Nitro book, there's a ton of stuff that was going on in 1994, 1995, related to WCW that I knew nothing about because it was so far above my head. But looking back at it now, I have to wonder if, you know, with the NBC thing, you know, at least on the horizon or on Ted's landscape, any opportunity to bring in Randy. And Now, Randy was a different situation. That was an easy deal to do. But the the risk of bringing in a Hulk Hogan, um, did that have any, was that possibly as easy as it was because Ted saw a play on NBC? I wouldn't have known that. But my point is, Ted... You wanted to buy the network. I knew through Bill Shaw. Don't worry. If Ted buys a network, WCW is going to fit into the plans. So it, it's the opposite of what, you know, the little whisperers, or birds or Chinese chirpers, or whatever the fuck they are. We're talking about at the time.
0: Well, everybody in the wrestling industry is talking about the macho man jumping ship He's going to debut on December 3rd on WCW Saturday night. And we've talked about the macho man and great length here on the show, but we'll circle back for a minute here. Uh, why the decision to debut him on Saturday night? Obviously, it's the flagship show, but was there some wisdom to just having him show up at Starcade, or did you think this would be an added attraction? And maybe the storyline of what will he do to Hulk Hogan was maybe more intriguing than uh Randy, Randy Savage match.
1: It was the latter, you know. It, it would again, it would be easy for someone to go back and rebook or 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 analyze, you know, creative decisions that were made at that time. And someone would not be wrong if someone said, I think it would have been smarter just to save Randy for the pay-per-view cuz that would in the long term create the perception that pay-per-views are can't miss. I I I I'd, I'd have to agree with that. You can't you cannot argue with that. Um on the other hand, There is there's another argument that would say, wait a minute, we've got two million people watching, you know, our flagship wrestling show. If three or four percent of those people buy the pay-per-view that wouldn't have otherwise bought the pay-per-view, we've just paid Randy Savage's salary for the next two years. So. There or whatever the math is. You get my point. Sure. There's added there's incremental value. There's added value by promoting it and hopefully drawing in the largest audience you can for the pay-per-view there. That is a very valid and sustainable argument, as is the other one. <laughs> so this is one of those situations where both things can be absolutely correct. They're not. It's not a binary choice. But the choice we made was, again, we're a television company. Pay-per-view was important. If we were a pay-per-view company and that was the only thing that mattered, likely we would have made a different choice. But keep in mind, context, we were a television company. Every decision that was made was made because of the decision that I made, quite frankly, to put all of our resources into television. The rest of it will follow. And as you pointed out, it's already happening. It started happening in 93. We're starting to see it manifest now in 1994. So it's not that I'm trying to pat myself on the back, but the, the thought processes at this point in 93 and 94 leading up to this moment, based on the information that you just shared with us that I quite honestly didn't even know, um, suggests that putting the resources into television was the right thing decision across the boards so even though both things are correct i i still would to the state given the same circumstances um i would have made the decision to put randy on tv the week before the pay-per-view
0: what sort of uh, pushback did you get from titan when you not only have savage but you're going to cart him out on tv because the rumor in innuendo is that they're going to try to take to legal and say nope he can't legally do that he's technically got a contract eventually of course we know you guys work it out but that does feel like one of the very first times that something like that happened years before the whole Scott Hall Kevin Nash debacle
1: yeah it was contentious and again you know from WWE's point of view they were suffering financially um their 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 business was was tanking both from ad sales and and live event gate business they were doing well overseas which is why they were spending so much time over there at this point that was the only place they could go and and make money the domestic u.s market was just fried um and had been for a while um but you know when randy left it wasn't just randy leaving i don't think vince mcmahon you know cared too much about well I'm, i'm sure he did on one level um but I don't think Vince McMahon looked at Randy coming over to wrestle for WCW as is, is going to have some you know, adverse financial impact on WWF. But when Randy left and took Slim Jim with him, that was a $750,000 kick to the balls. So it was not only Randy leaving. It was three quarters of a million dollars in sponsorship that he wasn't going to be able to find anywhere else leaving with him. That's, that's what was the catalyst for the, the legal Back and forth.
0: Let's switch gears and talk about the international. Uh, of course, we're going to see the pay per view debut of Alex Wright on this show, but you guys actually do a tour of Germany and you're running roughly a thousand fans each show, uh, running smaller buildings that only hold around 2,500. Uh, Vader and Austin are both missing the tour because of injuries, and Sting is in the main event against Paul Roma early on but eventually they changed that to six man teams with sting and stars and stripes taking on roma arn anderson and bunkhouse buck chat me up uh this german tour seems snake bit when we've got paul roma in the main events against sting
1: it would uh, and it certainly does on paper if you don't understand or, or or don't calculate in where wcw was at that point in time internationally which was fucking nowhere. (laughs) We had very little international distribution. Um, We had no promoters that we were aligned with in Germany at this time or anywhere for that matter. So not only did we not have any television that mattered in any of the local markets we were promoting in, which means the the audience in Germany didn't know our characters. They didn't know our storylines. Even if they would have wanted to, they wouldn't have been able to find it anywhere uh, and even if we would have had television, we didn't have a promoter that was capable of promoting this type of an event. So w- when we went over there, our shows were bought shows. W- we did because of Hulk Hogan. And you can, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to you know, continually justify bringing in Hulk Hogan. But, you know, we've talked about some of the other ancillary benefits of, of Hogan being, you know, ad sales and sponsors and pay-per-view, you know, better pay-per-view Um, opportunities and all that kind of stuff. One of the other ones that we haven't talked about until just now was international. Hulk Hogan was a name that allowed us to grow our international television footprint because while they, nobody knew WCW or, or any of the talent in WCW internationally, they did know Hulk Hogan and it did change the conversations uh, internationally with, with our television markets. We were able to, to start engaging in conversations with promoters who were willing to buy the show out. So we weren't as concerned with gate as we were with the promoter being, you know, viable and financially responsible. And we had to, we knew going in, we had to build our our market. We're starting from the ground up. So while a domestic viewer, a wrestling fan might look at Sting and Paul Roma and go, what the fuck? As far as the German audience went, They didn't know Joe Blow from John Doe. It didn't matter to them, Uh, generally speaking, because we just weren't a part of, we weren't on television. It'd be like, you know, a a rock band coming to a market for the very first time that never had gotten any radio play or local buzz in any way, shape, or form. But they're coming. (laughs) Now, your hope is that, you know, if the promoter does a good job and promotes this unknown band and people come and they generally enjoy what they're seeing, that they'll come back again. That's where we were at internationally.
0: Talk to me a little bit about Alex Wright. Uh, who discovers Alex Wright? What are the plans for him? You know, it, it, it is an interesting gimmick, an interesting look. This is going to be his pay per view debut, and I'm bringing him up here because you guys were doing a tour of Germany. Chat me up.
1: A lot of the decisions, and we've touched on this with guys like Stephen Regal before and Fit Finley and um, a number of others, you know, that that came to us from overseas, certainly the Japanese in in a different kind of a way, but certainly the Japanese. Um, The goal with guys like Alex Wright was to take local local talent, you know, um, and integrate them into – WCW storylines, align them with some of the top talent in WCW. Let them get the rub, as they like to say in the industry. Um, let them get the rub, so that when we do promote in the lo- local markets, we're prom- promoting, you know, a local, a local hero, somebody from their country, their hometown. You know that made it big in in the United States because that was a big attraction. That was one of the reason. But and by the way, the the same you know syndrome, if you will, is still true today in international television. If if you can go to a German distributor of television and say I have a television show that is on in prime time or is on a a good day part in the United States, and it's successful, whatever success means, success could mean just by virtue of the fact that it's technically on the air, Um, that's generally enough to get an international distributor to the table. And they'll start looking at you. Because if you're you're hot in the U.S., if you're culturally speaking, and this is back in the mid-90s now, if, if a U.S. television property is going to find a home, and depending on what it is, there's certain there's certain things, certain properties that don't translate well from the U.S. to to the foreign market. And I'm speaking from a point of view of back in the '90s. It may be different now because I'm obviously not in that business. But at this period of time, um, comedies, U.S. comedies didn't do very well overseas because American humor and German humor or British humor or French humor or Spanish or Italian humor humor it's all different. Culturally, humor is different in every country and, and is somewhat indigenous to that specific market. And when you try to import humor, it, it, it's hard for it to find a home. It's one of the reasons why British comedies, you know, you get Benny Hill and you get a couple others that have kind of broke up Monty Python. But for the most part, British humor doesn't play well in, in the States. Um, dramas, again, culturally some work, some don't. But wrestling, for whatever reason, internationally, wrestling always translates. It's why WWE is in 183 whatever countries they are around, or shows watch in 183 different languages, whatever the stat is. They have a massive, massive international footprint. And it's because wrestling—it's a simple format. This is where wrestling, to me, this is where I get excited talking about wrestling as a product—not necessarily WWE or what WCW you know failed to do or accomplish, anything like that. But if you look at what Cody Rhodes and the Bucks, you know, Ring of Honor, um, you know, New Japan, there's so much opportunity out there because wrestling has always translated when it's done well. It's good guys, it's bad guys, and it's exciting visuals to watch. It's fighting. It's good versus evil. It's the very basics. And no matter how sophisticated or evolved the in-ring presentation gets, because it always will evolve and and become more more complex in certain ways, but as long as it continues to try to tell a story – and try to create characters we like, and try to create characters we don't, so the audience is engaged in something other than just the spectacle. Wrestling will, will be around long after you know. You and I both are. You're a lot younger than I Conrad, you uh, than I am, Conrad, but wrestling will be around you know longer than both of us, because it's simple and it translates. Wow, you got me all excited in a positive way. This is good because I know what's coming. I, I still I'm still that puppy walking up to the edge of the pond without knowing the fucking alligators laying in the weeds with a big appetite. I know that's still the case, but right now in this moment, you're getting me excited to talk about wrestling.
0: Talk to me about Germany. The decision to go here. You're saying you know you don't. Your dad is Kelsey's nuts over there. You don't have anything going on. You don't have local promoters. You're not running sold shows. Why is it important to just try and get something going before you even have TV there?
1: Well, we knew we were going to get TV there. Number one, TV was coming. Um, it, we just hadn't been there. Number two, we found, and I would say this was uh, probably, I'm trying to remember, specific, I remember the first meeting I had. The promoter that came over, oh, you're going to have fun with this. I'm gonna tell you this promoter's name, and you're just gonna you're gonna you, for the next six months you're gonna be banging me about this guy's name somehow. His name was Dieter Kropp, K R A P. Dieter was a was a representative from a promotion over in Germany, that once we brought in Hulk Hogan, they were and they were, you know, they were aligned with networks in Germany, so they had influence. They were a big, you know, they promoted the Rolling Stones, they promoted a lot of big, big acts around you know, from around the world into Germany. So they were a legit big time promoter. Um, but they had, hadn't had any experience with wrestling, and this was going to WCW was going to be their first foray into it. But because they knew we had Hulk Hogan, they had confidence, and they were willing to put up the money. But we knew TV was coming. This was this was this wasn't like oh let's throw it up against the wall and see if it works. This was okay. Here's a strategy. We know we've got TV coming, or at least we feel confident that if we show up, because that's part of it too, Conrad. When we talk about some of this stuff. You know, when you go into a market like Germany, if you're a company like WCW, and you go to a network, and you say, okay, look, I've got Hulk Hogan, I've got Sting, I've got Ric Flair, again, unfortunately, no disrespect to any of them, but for the most part, they didn't mean anything at that time internationally. But here's what we do, here's a sample of our tape, here's what our shows look like, here's what we're doing in the United States, and we want to come to Germany. One of the first questions that a network is going to say is, okay, great, um, how much money are you going to spend on our network promoting your show if we if we buy the show from you? And it was always a license fee, right? We always got paid from the network. We never bartered. We never paid them. So it was a part of a negotiation. And before a network would say, okay, we'll take on your property and we'll pay you $5,000 a week for it. However, what are you going to do to promote your show on our network? Because it's not just the network's responsibility to promote, it's also the promoter's responsibility to promote. So what are you going to do? Oh, and by the way, how often are you going to tour in our market? Because when you, if you're, if you're a television network in Germany and you're buying or licensing a, tele, a live-action television property mm-hmm. Um, from the United States and importing it into your country, you also want to know that there's an opportunity to make additional dollars from that live event. And and that would come from local advertising and marketing and things like that. So it was more of a comprehensive kind of strategy than just, well, let's do a live event and hope TV comes along. All of those discussions were taking place at the same time. And we had a promoter with Dieter Krapp. (laughs) <laughs> that was willing to offset all of our risk
0: talk to me a little bit about bret hart there is a report on scheme gene i mean mean Gene's hotline that you guys are negotiating with bret hart here bret hart had just lost the world title to bob backland i call bullshit on that do you remember carl demarco or anybody reaching out on behalf of bret hart to sort of gauge wcw's interest here
1: I know who Carl DeMarco is. I've, I've had a number of conversations with Carl over the years. Not recently. I, can, no, I, I can't I can tell you, did Carl DeMarco call Jim Barnett <laughs> and have a conversation? Maybe. I wouldn't have been on the call. I, nobody ever told me it happened. I certainly wasn't a part of that discussion. All I can tell you is that in my world at that period of time, there has never been been a breath of a conversation about Bret Hart. It's just absolutely, it's like the rumor that I just read. Somebody asked me yesterday on Twitter, you know, Diana Hart said in her book that you you challenged Davey Boy Smith and somebody else to a fight in front of Bob Do because of an argument over his European pay. Where in the fuck does this stuff come from? Well, how do people, like, shoot heroin and lay in bed at night and try to um, – or or imagine all these fucking weird drug-induced scenarios and then wake up and believe somehow that they were actually true, like in a in a really bad nightmare where it takes you, like, 30 seconds to realize you're, it was a nightmare? Maybe these people wake up out of this fucking drug-induced coma that they've been in and they go, oh, yeah, Eric Bischoff challenged Davy Boy Smith to a fight because they were arguing over his European pay. First of all, nobody got European pay. Everybody got a fucking paycheck every two weeks. There was no European pay. Nobody had a fucking deal that said, well, normally you'd make $1,500 a night in the U.S., but because we're in Germany, we're going to cut that in half. Conversations never existed. Everybody knows in the wrestling universe that Eric Bischoff offered talent guaranteed contracts. Guess what a guaranteed contract means? You get a big chunk of fucking money and you get nothing else. That's what that means. And and to suggest that some of these bizarro scenarios actually happen just really paints the picture of how much misinformation and fabrication and 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 like cartoon like scenarios were being discussed on chat boards and dirt sheets during that period of time. So no, there was no conversation with Bret Hart. We clear on that
0: we are and one of the other things we're clear on is why you bought so many ads in the usa today you did it right before starcade as well a half page ad on page two in usa today before starcade we know that's because all those sports stations around the world are going to mention it so roll title that. uh the show is actually sold out three hours early and um it's pretty funny because Meltzer would say a sight so far in the WCW that many of the office people were out front taking photos of the box office with the sold out signs before match time. So even though we're going to make fun of the show, I'm sure it's sold out. So somebody was doing something right, but you know, before I beat you up about the Brutus talk, I figure we might as well give you a little treat today because believe it or not, I don't know if even you remember this. This show is the show that marks the end of the Honky Tonk Man in WCW. He was supposed to be in a television title match with Mark Marrow, and he quits or gets fired, depending on who you believe.
1: <laughs> I fired him. There's nothing, there's, not, there's no question. I did it in front of a bunch of people. I did it in a loading dock area at the arena. It wasn't even in my office. And one of the reasons I did it and the reason I'm so emphatic, that there's there's no ambiguity, there's no gray area, there's no possibility to possibly, you know, maybe interpret it one way, maybe interpret it the other way, because I admittedly, you know, as we go through this show, there are situations where, you know, two different people see things from two different perspectives, and they're never going to be resolved. This is not one of those fucking cases, all right? This idiot actually believed he was Elvis. This idiot who came from an era and probably a market where holding up the promoter is kind of like, you know, if you think you're really smart and you think you've got leverage and you really think your star is shining bright enough to take the risk and you think that the person you're dealing with is a fucking idiot, then you hold them up. You get a bonus.
0: Jeff Jarrett.
1: <laughs> Jeff Jarrett, right? We all know it. It's that's that was not unusual. That was like an old school, you know, hangover from the territory days, right? And this idiot actually believed that his star was bright enough and that he was smart enough and that he had leverage and he was going to show to the boys because they were all standing around backstage. This was not done in private. We didn't meet over in the corner of the arena and have this discussion or in my office, right? This was right smack dab in the middle of the loading dock area where the production trucks were. And there were hundreds of people running around. And I fired his ass because he tried to hold me up. He didn't want to drop the belt to John to be bad unless we revisited his contract. He motherfucker actually thought he was Elvis. He actually believed in his head. I know this to be true. I was looking in the idiot's eyes and he actually believed in his head that Elvis, if Elvis left the building, yours truly would be left holding the bag with no choice and nothing to do. And I knew the reason I know that there's no ambiguity, the reason I know it's not a depending on who you believe type of scenario is because I made the decision on the spot. I'd never fired anybody up to this point that I can remember at least. But at this point, I knew enough in my early years as, as executive management in a wrestling company that if this guy calls me out, holds me up and backs me down in front of Basically, my entire company, I'm fucked. Even if I would have desperately needed him, even if he would have been Hulk Hogan or Ric Flair, I still would have fired him because there was no choice backing down in the in the in the, you know, if the only way I'm going to drop this belt, baby, is you know, we re- revisit my contract. The the only if I would have backed down from that and and agreed to even discuss it after the fact, I would have had zero zero leverage going forward in any discussion I ever had, and that's why I tell you and you know we joke about it sometimes on our, our live shows. I go into much greater detail, but it's one of the reasons why I I still look back fondly to the day I fired him. Let's it's talk one about of the, one of the highlights of my career.
0: Uh, allegedly, um, this happens because. Well, we'll, we'll break it down exactly from the observer. Honky Talkman quit the promotion just before match time. Don't know all the details, but was told honky was expecting to get the TV title, but he should pay attention because the pre-tape television has Johnny B bad wearing the belt through January. He was also unhappy about not getting a contract where both he and Jim Duggan are on a thousand dollar per match deal rather than a guaranteed yearly salary. And both were told coming in that nobody was going to get guaranteed big money deals as they have in the past, but they both feel misled at this point because Randy Savage came in and got such a deal. He may have balked about being asked to do the job, but I don't know that as a fact, considering his career alternatives at this point, even though he may have felt like he was right to walk out, the decision has to be perplexing. Now that's the report from the observer, but I, I want to mention that hockey Tonk man backs out exactly what you said. He says on this night, when he finds out he's going to put Johnny over, he calls you outside. You stand against the wall and quote, puff your chest out. And he tells you that, uh, he's not doing the job and you say, well, you're not one of my players and you don't have a contract. So if he wasn't going to do it and he said that he wasn't going to do it and you said, well, if you don't, then you're definitely not getting a contract. And he asked you, what guarantee do I have? If I go out there and do this job that when I come back through the curtain, you won't tell me I'm fired. And according to him, you said you don't have one meaning a guarantee that you still wouldn't fire him. And he said that you said to him, uh, he did jobs for Vince and honky said, Vince paid me very well to do those jobs. And then allegedly he says that you told him that, uh, or he told you, you couldn't carry Vince's jock and walked out. So that's the way he frames it. Now, of course you say, you know, you fired him either way. I'm fascinated with the thousand dollar a night guarantee, which we'd never really talked about. And that the wrinkle is, hey, if I'm going to do this, I want a contract. And you weren't willing to budge on that. But he does say that this nightly deal sometimes would be $1,000 to fly to Atlanta, do a 30-second promo, and then fly home. And it wasn't always a match. Um, But he says that you really never liked him. He says in the first meeting you guys ever had... You told him you didn't like his gimmick, and you were never a fan of his. But to shut up Jimmy Hart, you were going to bring him in because Jimmy oh was dropping. Oh my God! I, can't, nuts. I I
1: just can't. I, I, please, we got to give this to me in smaller doses. Okay. This is like, this is like if you go into the doctor and say, Doctor, I'm not really sure. My stomach hasn't been feeling right. He goes, Yeah, we need to. We we need to give you a. You know. We need to go up your ass and look around and see what's up there. And instead of sticking up one of those little cameras where they go around and look around in your insides, he comes out with a toilet plunger and sticks it up your ass. That's what this is like. Listening to all this bullshit and nonsense and fiction. You know, let's go back to Hul- Honky's description of the scene. Number one, we weren't outside. We were standing right next to a, a Turner production truck, right? There were people, there were grips, there were talent, there was everybody walking back and forth. We were not outside. We were standing next to a production truck, number one. Number two, I don't lean up against walls when I talk to people, and I don't puff out my chest. So it, his entire description of the scene is fucked up. Now, some of some like, you know, much of what Dave Meltzer writes, some there are aspects, there are granulars of granules of fact and truth in there. But then there's a just giant ball of bullshit wrapped around it. Um, he never said anything. You know, m- me bringing up, I never said to him, well, you did jobs for Vince McMahon. Why shouldn't you do them for me? That never came out of my mouth. It's right. nonsense. Yeah. He basically said, look, I, I don't want to do a job unless we revisit my contract. And I said, great. That's an ultimatum. They don't work for me. You're done. You're out. That's it. that's it. It was the shortest conversation I probably have ever had with talent, number one. Number two, I never had a meeting with him before he came in. Right? I never sat down. We never negotiated. There was He wasn't significant enough, in my opinion, at that time for me to take the time to try to get to know before I made the decision. He was coming in to fill a role. It was a minor role. It was a temporary minor role. I wouldn't have wasted seven minutes of my time to walk down the hall and have a conversation with somebody at his level. And that's not being arrogant. That's just being honest. So that, that proposed meeting or supposed meeting that took place prior to him coming in never fucking happened. And neither did his ultimatum back to me. Well, Vince McMahon paid me a lot of money to do that. The conversation never happened. He held me up, told him to go fuck himself, and we went in another direction. End of conversation. The rest of it is just him feeling good about himself. That's oh. no, all right. I get it. People need to do that
0: allegedly Honky says uh, his relationship with hulk deteriorated during his time in wcw because whenever honky would go complain to hogan hogan would say he couldn't do anything so
1: well that's you know that's a completely different narrative than we'd normally heard normally you know hulk's buddies come in and they get broed in and, and hulk comes to me and i give the talent whatever they want and you know well for the most part that's not true yeah. <laughs> But in Honky's case, yeah, it, it's just so much of his perspective is just him trying to frame himself to look as good in that situation as he possibly could, or to make me look as bad. Either way, it doesn't matter. I know what happened.
0: Uh, let's talk about the show, what we're really here for. Starcade 1994. The dark match was Aaron Anderson and Bunkhouse Buck getting a win over the Armstrongs, both Brad and Scott. Uh, a- Anderson gets the win after a DDT here. And then the show opens with, uh, an interesting, very well dated 1994 graphic, uh, teasing all the different feuds and matches that were in store for. But when we go to the live shot, I was just, I guess sometimes I forget what a hall of fame crew you had here. Tony Schiavone, mean Gene Okerlund and Bobby Heenan are previewing the show. Uh, that's a big time cast right there. I mean, I, I think that's probably as good as it gets.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with you, and that's you know it was one of the things that, again, I got a lot of heat for when I when I wanted to change the perception of our announce team from what it was, in the early '90s, and and Jim Ross and you know even Jim and Tony working together. I, I needed to change it. I needed I needed it to feel a little broader, a little bigger. And bringing in Gene and Bobby, I think going back, looking at it, that was probably one of the better decisions that we made as a company. It certainly supported the bigger efforts, um, bigger financially at least, of bringing in guys like Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage. If you If you're going to upgrade your roster, you need to upgrade the way you present that product as well. And I think nothing against Jim. Um, Jim, Jim didn't leave the company because he wasn't a good announcer. There were other issues involved there, but with Jim, you know, having left and going on to WWE, uh, eventually I think having Bobby and Gene was a severe drastic upgrade.
0: No doubt about it. Uh, after this, you guys cut to a, uh, a video of Hulk Hogan being giving his pro wrestling illustrated wrestler of the year trophy. Of course, Bill actor is the master of ceremonies there. And then we see the original promo and, and, introduction of Randy Savage, where we're teasing, not necessarily just the main event for tonight, but what is Randy Savage going to do when he comes face to face with Hulk Hogan? What'd you think of this opening segment here? Cause it is several minutes where there's no action, just a video recap. And then the video of bill after awarding Hulk Hogan and then the macho man promo. What'd you think of this?
1: I had a hard time watching it right from the beginning, you know, and And this is – I say this every time you and I do something like this where I do the watch along and I watch an event. Now, this one from 1994, I had not seen – I had not seen that pay-per-view since we produced it, since I was in the building that day or that night. That was the last time I saw it, okay? And probably then I only saw bits and pieces of it because I was running around, you know, working while the pay-per-view was going on. So I wasn't able to just sit and stare at a monitor for two hours and 44 minutes until last night. When I did it on Patreon. So there's so much, you know, going back as far as we're going here, I see this and it's like, it's shocking to me. You know, it's shocking to me how poorly formatted this show was from a television point of view. And I know it's pay-per-view and formatting a pay-per-view and formatting a television show are two entirely different things. It's like, you know, when you're building a house, you got plumbing. That's a really important part of it. And you've got, you know, framing which is an important part of it they both have to be good and that's what this is you know when you format a pay-per-view you've got to format it properly you can't just say ah it's a pay-per-view it doesn't matter we're not going to lose any audience we can do whatever we want that's you don't have that luxury but it's it's really different but looking at this pay-per-view knowing we don't have commercial breaks the audience has already made the decision. They've already committed to the entire two hours and 44 minutes by virtue of the fact that they paid whatever they paid for the pay-per-view and there's no turning back. Once you make that decision, you made it. So the the thought of wow, we better keep up the pace of this show in order to keep the audience happy is kind of down the list. And what we're looking for, you know, ideally when you, when you, build a pay-per-view format you know you want the drama to escalate you want to you want to be able to have enough time to talk about what we're about to see to bring everybody up to speed because i think at this time we were only doing eight pay-per-views a year so there's a lot of tv that takes place before the payoff at the pay-per-view and you want to have enough time to put all that in context recap it show video set it up so that the stakes are there once we finally get to the match. All right? That's a really long-winded way of my philosophy on formatting pay-per-views. However, this one completely broke from that. There was just so much gaga, so much conversation. You know, I love Bill Lapter. He's one of the sweetest men in in the industry. I, I always give him crap. I never treat him like I like him, but he knows I do. But he is just... He's a great guy, and everybody—nobody doesn't love Bill Apter that knows him. You cannot dislike him. Um, that being said, this—just—it this, was so contrived that it really—it—it t- it took the 2018 Eric Bischoff. It completely took me out of any potential I had for hoping this was going to be an interesting pay-per-view. It was so phony, it's so contrived. It took me out of the moment at the very beginning.
0: I actually dug it. I don't know why I liked the cutaways to the awards. I know we got a lot of questions online about, did we think it messed up the sh- the flow of the show? And I knew that you would have an opinion on that, but I thought it was cool. I thought it added some uh, legitimacy for it to be a third party like Pro Wrestling Illustrated. Of course, at the time, I didn't know what I know now, but a shout out to Bill after, uh, I know that you don't keep up with this, but he went into the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame this week. Good for
1: him. Bill is, I mean... <laughs> One of the things I like about Bill cuz he knows I love when he does this Jerry Lewis impersonation and when he does it I mean he morphs he not only sounds like Jerry Lewis he like a like a really good you know person that does impressions he actually beca- he actually begins to look like Jerry Lewis when he's doing the when he does the impression he kind of morphs into Jerry and it just I don't know it's just you, Bill's one of those guys even if you're in a horrible mood when you cross paths with him, like at an airport or a hotel or in an arena, you can be in the worst mood and you know, you're going to stop and talk to bill because he's bill. And within 30 seconds, you find yourself laughing or smiling at least. So he's just one of those guys. You can't be in a bad mood around, around bill Aptor.
0: Well, let's see if you can be in a bad mood about this. Jim Duggan is going to come in as United States champion to uh, try to defend his title against big van Vader, who was seconded by Harley race These guys go 12 minutes and six seconds. The match only got a star and a half. Uh, Vader is your new United States champion when it's all said and done. I got to tell you, I really had very, very low expectations. I am a uh, admitted Vader super fan, uh, but I've never been a giant Jim Duggan fan and can't really even mention uh, a Jim Duggan match that I enjoyed. I've just, I appreciate the character and I appreciate the persona, but as far as a match, eh, I don't know. This match really surprised me. I don't know if it was because it was old school, but I enjoyed it. It was much better than I expected. What did you think?
1: I agree with you. And, you know, when we were watching this on Patreon the other night, um, I, I commented almost the same thing you just did in my own way. I felt the same way. You know, Jim, Jim was a great character. Jim was there for a reason. Jim was there to add ambiance to the overall event. Jim was not there because he was a great wrestler, but he was a great character. And the audience reacted to that great character in a positive way for television. So I, while he may not have had the kind of match that, you know, you or even myself or, you know, Dave Meltzer would, would want from a technical point of view, the audience dug him. Now, the match, however, as I watched it last night, because I completely forgot about it. I mean, I just it w- went in one ear when it happened and out the other, the, you know, within an hour. So I was seeing it and I, I noticeably impressed with, number one, what a great job Vader did. And I talked about this on Patreon. You know, Vader had a reputation for being hard to work with. He, he could be moody. like I, And by the way, that's true with a lot of top talent. It's not just Vader, right? It's just the nature of the beast in many respects across the board, whether it's wrestling or music or movie stars, TV stars, whatever. Top talent tends to get a little bit moody from time to time. And, and Vader could. He could either be a pain in the ass, bully, just grouchy, tough to work with, or he could be the sweetest, easiest person in the world that would work his ass off for you. What we saw with Duggan and Vader was Vader being the guy that would do anything for you and bust his ass for you. Vader sold like a rock star for Duggan, which made Duggan look better than you expected him to look. Part of that was Duggan. The majority of that was Vader. That's why you felt that way.
0: I, uh, my only criticism of the entire match was I really wish he would have finished with a Vader bomb as opposed to the, I don't know, the little flapjack slapjack thingy. They did. I mean it was fine but um the teasing of the vader bomb and then him moving for the moonsault it's super old school but very enjoyable you could tell the crowd was getting into it and uh, the, everybody is ready for the spectacle when vader goes to the top rope i think it's a bit of a sleeper if i'm honest with you i kind of forgot that jim duggan was ever even u.s champ until we started doing research for this show uh but it was cool to see that vader had a shot at that belt and obviously we know he's going to be working with hogan next um let's talk a little bit about you know jim duggan's existence in wcw i don't know that we'll ever do a full-blown show on him but he's referenced in that honky-tonk man vein as working for a thousand dollars a night uh when when did you guys switch gears and put him on a traditional contract
1: oh i i think we were well we were out about 94 obviously i think Probably by first quarter, second quarter, 95, as things started growing, as we started now moving in more into the house show business, um, it started to make more sense to have guys like Jim that, yeah, look, w- people knew who he was. Right. He had, a, he had a lot of brand equity built up from during his time at WWF. And look, regardless of what people want to say, that brand value was still there. It, it may not have been what it was when he was in WWF, but if, if his brand was worth $100 when he was in WWF, and his name value, when I say brand, if his name value was worth $100, for example, in WWF, it was at least worth $20, $25, $30 in WCW. He wasn't a, he wasn't a WCW guy. He didn't have that long-term relationship with the WCW audience. Um, but we weren't trying to... Satisfy the WWE audience, excuse me, the WCW audience. We were trying to grow it. We were trying to bring in people who otherwise never watched WCW. And a guy like Jim Duggan allowed you to do that. You knew he wasn't going to have, you know, a Dave Meltzer, you know, four or five star match, whatever the fuck they are. You knew he was, you know, hardcore wrestling fans that really love the. The technical aspects of wrestling weren't going to be huge, you know, Jim Duggan fans. Certainly the longtime NWA, now WCW loyal Southern fan base weren't going to be huge, you know, Jim Duggan fans. But we we weren't trying to grow that audience. We were trying to grow the audience we didn't have, not the one we did. So Jim, Jim had value. Jim was easy to work with. Jim was a pro. Unlike that piece of shit honky-tonk man, you know, Jim was a pro. And... It made sense at some point, 95, to give him um, a guaranteed contract.
0: Uh, Was this a a Hulk Hogan hire? How does he come up originally? Mm,
1: I don't think Hulk Hogan. Hulk Hogan was clearly supportive of Jim, but it's not like Hulk Hogan was an employment agency and everybody came to his house and had hot dogs and beer and said, okay, who's next? Who's next? I want to be next. Hulk, make sure Eric hires me. It wasn't that. Um, but when either through Terry Taylor or Ric Flair or Mike Graham or any number of other people that, you know, worked for us at the time who had relationships with these guys, they would bring their names up, you know, it'd go around a room. If there was a reason that made sense and it got generally good support within the group, then we brought them in. Um, but it wasn't like Hulk Hogan came into me with his Rolodex and said, here,
0: call this guy next. Sure. I understand. Let's, let's run, uh, through the next match here, because this is sort of an interesting one, especially knowing what we know now, Alex Wright is going to be working here with Jean Paul Levesque. And, uh, we know that old JP is going to go on to be the game. They're going to go 14 minutes and three seconds. And Alex Wright gets the win. Uh, Alex Wright is making his pay-per-view debut here. And, uh, well. It's an interesting gimmick. Let's just say that it gets a star in a quarter. Uh, I didn't think this match was as enjoyable as the first one, but clearly we've got a ton of talent in the ring here. What'd you think about an, an old school triple H match here at Starcade?
1: It was really, it was, I, I compl- like you. I when when Sean Paul Levesque, triple H or
0: what was his name in WCW? Uh, he also went by Rising at a different point.
1: Yeah, when, I think that was, that, that was his gimmick before he got to WCW. Whatever. When he came out in his entrance, I was like, whoa, this is crazy. I forgot all about this. And it was so fascinating to watch it knowing what we know now, having lived through everything that we've lived through as fans and, and people in the business to be able to have completely forgotten about this match, completely forgotten about it, you know, Paul Levesque was like the farthest thing from my mind when I sat down to, to watch the show on Patreon with our, our supporters there. And then when he came out, I was like shocked. It was like, you know, it was like, who's the third man kind of shocked. It was, I went, whoa, this is going to be fun to watch. And it was fun for me, especially looking back at early, you know, Paul Levesque, Triple H, whatever you want to call him. Um, you see, there was a lot of similarities, you know, you saw, I saw things in this match with Alex Wright that there are still hints of in, in Triple H's presentation to this day, you know, the way he carries himself. He works really big. That's one of the things that I notice. which, by the way, is a, if he hears this or hears of it, he'll know that this is a compliment. You know, one of the things you'll hear really veteran uh, performers say um, is slow down. You know, let the audience see what you're going through. Let the audience experience vicariously what you are feeling in the heat of battle in this ring. And sometimes because you're playing to a large crowd, you know, you're, you know, on Broadway, you're playing to six or 800 people in the audience or whatever it is. You know, in an event like this, you're playing to 15,000 people, some of whom are like 300 yards away in the cheap seats. So your physical reactions to things need to slow down and be much bigger or more exaggerated than they would normally be in order for the people back in the far seat way back in the back of the arena in order to engage them you've got to be able to communicate to them which means facial expressions are more exaggerated big motions like you know there was a spot there i can't remember i think alex was going for a sunset flip or something and triple h was trying or paul Ovech was trying to you know keep from going over and his motions, his arm motions were like huge. It looked like he was trying to flag down an airplane from a deserted island, you know, it, but I think that was, that's really smart. That's great instinct or great training or both. You, you saw some of that. Now that's not a big thing. You know, that's not something, you know, an average wrestling fan is going to notice and articulate because they're used to producing television. But if you look at some of the basic fundamentals that Paul Levesque brought to that match, he was still green. He was still rough around the edges. He wasn't any better than Alex Wright at this point, and in fact, Alex was far more <laughs> athletic, and 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 was quicker and sharper. Um, but. Paul, you could see it there now i I wouldn't have been ascert- been able to ascertain those qualities and see the potential in them because i was I was as green as he was at this point when it came to analyzing wrestling talent, but it sure as hell was fun to watch now, knowing what I know now, looking back you know twenty three or twenty four years whatever the fuck it is
0: let's talk a little bit about uh what's next here uh we've got a, a fun match I mean I guess we should before I get going, we should talk about Jean-Paul Levesque because I know that a lot of people are going to have questions. Why didn't he make it in WCW Meltzer says nobody knows exactly what the future of Jean-Paul Levesque is. He was offered a $1,500 a week deal to stay and promised the tag titles was Steve Regal. Titan is also interested and in that. De- and the deal is the 1500 per, if WCW doesn't run many house shows would mean much less road expense which may actually net him more at the end of the year than a Titan deal in a low spot. But if WCW goes on the road full time, he'll gross more with Titan with a regular spot because of the European payoffs, even though the road expenses would still be higher. He should net more, but it wouldn't be guaranteed. Now, a few weeks after Starcade, Meltzer would report that the latest is he's strongly considering Titan. Um, when did you realize... Uh, Hey, he might be out, he might be in, and obviously nobody could have ever predicted the star he would go on to be, but had he stuck around, what do you think that would have looked like?
1: It's a hypothetical and, and I, I'll be wrong no matter how I answer it. So I'll just say, who knows? You know, there's, there's no way any intelligent, honest person is going to be able to to paint a picture of what could have happened with Triple H. Look, when Triple H got to for, first of all, let me answer, let me try to answer the question. It started out with when did I know that he might be Titan bound or something to that effect. I knew early on, you know, I, I I wasn't a huge Paul Levesque fan when I hired him, and not because of his work or lack thereof, not because of his look or lack thereof, but because he lived on the East Coast. Uh, in the Northeast, and I didn't like the idea of having to fly him in, because we were cutting expenses. It wasn't a choice. It wasn't a subjective, you know, do I like this guy or don't I like this guy? It was a real hard, you know, day-to-day fact that I couldn't afford to fly people in. And and Triple H, you know, jokes about that within, you know, look what I become. You know, back then Eric didn't want to pay for a plane ticket. Fucking idiot. He doesn't say it quite like that, but the implication is there. But. You know, again, in that moment, in that time, I'm, I'm, you know, saving $300, you know, a week in airfare was a big fucking deal. And Paul, Paul represented, you know, an expense we didn't want to incur. Now we did, we ultimately did. And we brought him in because there was a lot of support from him. Terry Taylor was his guy. Terry Taylor was the one that really found Paul champion. Paul, you know, was relentless about us bringing him in and felt that we really needed him. Um, but once he got there, it was kind of – look, he was boring. He was a great technician even then. I know that now. I didn't re- recognize it then. I want to be clear about that. But w- w- he was good. Looking at him now, even as green as he was, as inexperienced as he was, as lack of uh, you know b- brand value as he happened to have at that particular point, he was still just another guy that could that could have a great match or a good match that the audience didn't know or care about. And I also knew that he didn't really want to be in WCW. He he, had, he wanted, you know, he talked, you know, Triple H has talked about this, I believe, in, in interviews in the past. Um, at least I've read them, uh, whether he actually said it or someone just reported it, it's what he said. I'm not sure. But he even made it clear that, you know, WCW was a path to get to WWF. He was Paul grew up watching WWF. He was a fan of WWF. WWF is where he wanted to be, but he, he wasn't ready for WWF. So he once he got to WCW, got some television time, built his resume up a little bit, his goal was at the earliest possible point to make the move to WWF. That's the way I've heard the story from Paul's point of view, whether it's accurate or not, I, I, I can't attest. But I, I, on the flip side, I, you know, if we could have kept him, great. If, if we can't afford him, that's too bad. But there was nothing more or less to it than that.
0: Of course, he was trained by Keeler Kowalski. He was a bodybuilder when he first started uh, wrestling. And uh, he even won Mr. Teenage New Hampshire once. Uh, but when he first got going and even came into WCW, he Can was Can like, you
1: imagine what that division looked like? <laughs> mr T- mr teenage new hampshire there will be like four guys in the whole division
0: he uh he goes it's
1: from- new hampshire for christ's sake it's not like california or new york or florida or alabama it's fucking new hampshire
0: 275 280 pounds is roughly what he weighs when he comes in but he trims down to uh, 235 pounds and allegedly was working very hard on improving his in-ring skills at the wcw training school which we know is going to go on to be known commonly as the power plant and uh ultimately he's out of there of course he, he comes in as terrorizing which was uh, probably killer kowalski's idea um it is it is sort of fun to, to think about you know what this may have looked like had he hung around and what you guys would have done with him but if alex wright is in the indicator well maybe not that much because you guys did push Alex Wright and put him with some veterans, and it's fun to look back though. This is both of their pay per view debuts. It's Triple H's only WCW pay per view, and it's on the biggest show, you know, Starcade. So it's a fun little uh, what if sort of deal here for Starcade '94. Well, let's talk
1: about Alex though, because you you know, you, you kind of took a half ass swing at us for you know, yeah, you promoted him, but nothing happened. Um, I think, and you know, again. I talked about this a lot on Patreon uh, night before last. Looking at this match of the two, if you if you watch this match, and I I encourage people to go to WWE Network, you know, get Star K94 and if, for nothing else but look at this match, number one because it's really interesting to see, you know, Jean-Paul Levesque in WCW, it's just fascinating based on what we've all experienced since then. Number two, but look at look at two guys who were pretty much at about the same level of experience at this point, I think Alex looked from my subjective opinion much better than Paul. I like the way Paul sold. I told you about that. I like the way he worked the cameras. He had a natural instinct for that, or, or a learned instinct, either one. Um, he really had a great instinct f- for that portion of it. But in terms of fire, in terms of a look, um, in terms of even psychology a little bit, I'd give the nod to Alex. Um, And I think the reason Alex didn't get over, because that's the real question here, you know, we gave him a push. We did give him a push. And when I say we, by the way, Dusty was a huge Alex Wright fan. And so was your father-in-law. Your father-in-law thought the world of Alex Wright. Now, I don't know if he'll own up to it at this point, because we all tend to look back at history in, in a way that, is most favorable to us, (laughs) but, um, Rick was a, a legitimate big supporter of Alex, Wright. I think the mistake that was made with Alex from the get go, and this would go back to dusty, I guess, or, or, or perhaps it was Rick that gave him the, you know, um, what's the best way to describe it without offending anybody? I can't think of one, you know, the, the male stripper <laughs> gimmick where he comes out there in his little tights and his black leather jacket and dances like a village idiot, you know, that killed him, you know, cause that was the first thing you saw when he comes out, you know, is him acting, you know, like a male stripper, <laughs> you know, it, and it just, it took away everything else that happened after that it was hard to take it seriously with him. You couldn't really like him as a babyface because of the way he entered the ring. Even though he was a babyface, he was a babyface you wanted to punch in the fucking mouth. And it that when people talk about characters and why characters work and why they don't work, you know, Yes, he was a good-looking guy, which is why Dusty liked him. Was why Dusty liked Johnny Be Bad. You know, Johnny J- Dusty was looking at television the way everybody else was looking at television at that time. Is you got to have a good look. You got to look like a star to be a star. You know, that was a prevailing attitude amongst everybody. But guys like Dusty and Rick, you know, took that very seriously. You know, you wanted a star that looked like a star, and probably that's true to this day. Uh, and Alex had that look. He had the technical skill. He was a second-generation wrestler. His father was a, a very well-known wrestler in Germany. Alex came up in the wrestling business, not unlike a lot of people that you know wrestling fans look up to as second-generation wrestlers. He had all of the ingredients, but he got saddled with a goofy fucking gimmick that made him look like a dick dancer in a small town somewhere in Nevada, and it just killed him.
0: Who was handling booking at this time? Dusty, Rick, and...
1: Well, I'm not sure it was Dusty and Rick. It was usually Dusty or Rick. I'd have to go back and look, and I tried to do that for this show. Um, There is a couple sites that can kind of give you the chronology of who is booking when, and I think in this case in 94, it's actually listed as Dusty slash Rick, but that's because Dusty booked for a portion of the year, and then Rick booked for a portion of the year um the latter portion so i i would have to go with rick at this point
0: kevin sullivan's not involved despite all the dungeon of doom nonsense
1: oh no kevin sullivan's very involved okay kevin kevin sullivan's very involved and and and, you know i i really really feel um a little angry at myself for not being able to figure it out as to who was really booking then, but it was such a transitional period. I'm not sure Kevin Sullivan either wasn't working directly and and really working for Rick, or if Kevin Sullivan may have taken the book by now. I have to go back and look. I've talked to Kevin.
0: Uh, Meltzer is going to say that, uh, and I didn't even notice this uh, when I watched the show because I don't always watch the credits, but apparently Arne Anderson gets a credit at the end of the show as Marty Lund, which of course is his real name. And, um, I guess he's part of the booking committee here, but he's losing to Johnny B bad here, uh, for the television title. They go 11 minutes and 21 seconds. Um, Arne would say, although he may be partially excused because he probably didn't have more than about 20 minutes lead time. And even knowing he'd be in the match. When did you know that honky was out and Arn was in maybe honky? Being I, mean, out. I knew,
1: I knew when honky was out.
0: Sure. But I'm saying
1: that I fired him the week before.
0: When did you guys decide to go with Arn as the Honky replacement here?
1: It would have been during
0: the week. I mean,
1: would, I mean, Arn was on the booking committee. We knew that we, we knew what we were going to do wasn't going to happen anymore. You know, despite the fact that it was reported by someone um, that Arn only had about twenty minutes to get ready for the match, which is bullshit. Um, we knew that week who the replacement was going to be.
0: Who else were you considering? Was anybody else considered to uh, take this spot?
1: I don't. I don't think so.
0: Ultimately, Arn's going to win the television title on January 8th. Um, what do you think of this match here? I have an irrational hate for all things Johnny B. Bad in this era.
1: It is an irrational hate. And again, I think you hate the character. But again, if you, in fairness, um, when I go back and watch this stuff for Patreon, I I look at it from the point of view of a television producer, writer, who's been in the business with 30 years of experience. I don't look at it from the point of view as a wrestling fan. Um, so when I looked at this match, I looked at it strictly from a technical perspective, you know, being where's the psychology? How well is the is the story being executed in the ring? And how is the crowd reacting? I'm not judging particular moves or how r- high risk, you know, something is or any of the other kind of subjective judgments that other people make. And that's fine if they make them. I'm not criticizing that. I'm just trying to explain how I look at a match. And I think, in fairness, if you go back and try to put my hat on for a minute, even though it's not yours, and it may not fit very comfortably for very long, but if you try to look at that match from a purely producer's point of view, I, I thought it was a great match. Now, there's no story there. So obviously the crowd isn't going to be like sucked into the drama of it all. So the, 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 the measuring stick of how is the crowd going to react is probably an unfair judgment given the circumstances going into this. So take that out of the equation for just a minute and look at this from where's the psychology – what little psychology there could be because there's not really any story, but just in terms of who's the good guy, who's the bad guy in the ring and how's that story being told and look at the execution of it. You know, Johnny B bad was really pretty good. He gets a lot of shit, much like Alex, Wright. You know, people kind of frame him in the, you know, the overall view of the character or their overall view of the character. And Johnny B bad's character was goofy and it was dated even in 1994. It was goofy and it was dated. And not believable. Um, but his execution, his timing, and at least in this match, was pretty fucking good. And I attribute that to Arn Anderson. You know, Arn was talking. One of the things, if you if you go back and watch this match closely, there was a lot of conversation going on between Arn and Johnny Bad in this match. And I guarantee you, it's because Arn was the heel, he was the ring general, and there was nobody better than to direct and call this match than Arn Anderson. Uh, now, and I noticed that, and I'm sure astute wrestling fans will too, especially now that I pointed it out. But the fact that there had to be a lot of conversation in that match tells me that Arn is the one that was directing it because Arn was an old school guy. He didn't sit in the back and lay out move for move for move for move what they were going to do for 14 and a half minutes, right? He, he, for the most part, called the match in the ring. And I think Johnny and Arn did a great job for this match for what it was.
0: Nasty boys get a win over the Harlem heat by DQ. They go 17 minutes and 49 seconds. Uh, Meltzer liked the match. He gave it two and a quarter stars. Here's what he wrote. Easily the best match on the show, but to say they stole the show would mean they were guilty of petty theft. I don't know why, but that's a great line. I got to hand it to Dave. Now that's fucking cute.
1: Like, that would make me chuckle if I read that. I mean, I, I'm chuckling now. I'm smiling. I got a big, I got a Dave Meltzer's. My tongue's wagging like a fucking pervert. I'm going, to, ah, that's funny.
0: <laughs> that's a funny line. So, what'd you think of the match here? I, you know, it's always a guilty pleasure of mine. People always make fun, but I think the Nasty Boys are criminally underrated. They're good brawlers, they had entertaining matches. Uh, this one, for my taste, was maybe a little too long. What say you?
1: I agree with you 100%. It's one of the notes I made. If you go back and listen to the Patreon show where where we're breaking this one down, is I'm getting ready for you today. That was one of the things I pointed out right at the you know, midway through the match. I said, this has already gone on too long. Um, and that's the problem with the, 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 this type of match. If you're going to have an all-out brawl, you better keep it to about six minutes. You know, it, It's like you, you, you can't run a four-minute mile or a three-minute mile for a marathon. You know, if you're going to sprint, you're going to have a brawl because that's what that is. It's just – it starts hot. This match – you know, they jump-started this match with, with intense action, and it didn't stop until the end. The problem is even guys – you know, you look at the Nasty Boys here in 94. You could, you know, make fun of, you know, knobs for carrying a little extra weight. Sags looked pretty good. Sags was in good shape. But these guys were in great ring shape. But as, as great a ring shape as they were in, you know, by about 10 or 12 minutes, they were gassed. And all of a sudden, what looked good three minutes ago or four minutes ago is now starting to look pretty fucking sloppy. And unfortunately, that's what people remember. They don't remember the beginning. They remember the end. And when you start, when you take, you know, this type of a match where there is no psychology, there's no good guys, bad guys. It's just a fucking brawl. When you, when you have a match like this and you go 17 minutes with it, um, you're asking for, for trouble. And I agree with you. I thought it was entertaining. If you look at the crowd, you know, one of the third indicators, um, or one of the three indicators, the crowd got into it. You know, they weren't sitting on their hands. You know, you go back and look. First of all, I want to talk about – I want to divert for just a second. When I looked at this show again, I want to make sure I don't forget to say this. One of the things that pissed me off about this show more than anything was the building was too hot. The lighting was too hot for this building. A lot of empty spaces up against the wall and they weren't empty seats. They were just empty spaces because of the way the arena was configured and built. Um, And you could see way up into the rafters. Now, if you've got an animated hot crowd, that's great. But if you've got... You know, 8,000 people sitting on their hands falling asleep. Not so much. And that's what this arena had because of the way the audience was or in this case wasn't reacting. Having an a, – a, 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 and this was my bad, by the way. As the executive producer, this would have like landed square between my fucking eyes. It was my call. I should have gone out there and said, okay, what does the building look like? Especially once the the, 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 the audience got in there and you started watching the matches and realizing nobody was into their shit, we should have gradually, you know, subtly turned those lights down so it wasn't so obvious. Um, that being said, you know, the crowd did react to this match probably more than they did to just about any match on the card. Um, there were moments in the Sting match with uh john Tenta we're going to talk about there were moments in the main event we're going to talk about but overall i think the crowd got into this match more than they did any other match on the show
0: well here's one that didn't get into mr t and kevin sullivan
1: oh my god oh
0: sorry <sighs> sorry oh they got three <laughs> minutes and 50 seconds uh mr t gets a tiny pop coming out Meltzer would say he looked really out of shape, that he wasn't that bad for the first two minutes, but then he blew up. Uh, Dave Sullivan has been in the crowd as Santa Claus. They referenced him at the top of the show, but he appears here and, uh, he has Jimmy Hart put the megaphone in his toy sack, comes to the ring, hits Kevin in the back of the head and neck with it. And that allows Mr. T to score the pin. After the match, Kevin Sullivan delivers a fine pile driver to Dave Sullivan, <laughs> and uh it gets a dud rating what do you think this is a classic
1: this watching this and again i had when mr t came out in that fucking ref shirt with a ref beanie on like if santa claus was a referee he'd have a black and white striped fucking beanie when he came out through the, through the i i mean i almost fell off of my chair watching this on patreon the other night I was, I, I, I couldn't hardly talk. That's how fucking goofy it was. And then the match, this match is, if this is not one of the worst matches in WCW's history, maybe even wrestling history, and, I'm, I, and I'll go back. I'll go back, I'll look at some of the silly shit that Vern Gagne did with, with Jake Milliman. <laughs> and George Scrap Iron Gadaski. I mean, this was this was so fucking horrible. It should be a classic. And I said this on Patreon. This match was so bad and, and classically bad that it inspired me to figure out a way to get some footage from some of the worst matches in wrestling history and create a stream or a DVD. Because I think it'd be entertaining as hell. Sit back with a couple of your friends, grab a couple of beers, pour a scotch, take a hit off your bong, whatever the fuck you want to do, whatever you're into and is legal and you're not driving while you're doing it. Um, sit back and and watch this with a little bit of a buzz on. And I guarantee you it'll be one of the
0: highlights of your fucking year. It's crazy. I, um, This match made me want to punch you in the dick. Why punch your father-in-law? Number one, you got a much fucking bigger target to work with. (laughs) Oh, my God. And
1: and number two, why me? What are you at me for? I didn't book this garbage. Well, you allowed it to happen. Well, that's true. You know, maybe you don't punch me in the dick. Maybe you just push me down a short flight of stairs.
0: (laughs) I'm okay with that. (laughs) Uh, Mr. T was backstage telling people he didn't know what would have happened had it gone any longer because he was dead. Uh, but he didn't die here. Although he was dressed, uh, as if, I mean this, he he looks like seriously, he's from like a, um, a Christmas cartoon or something. I mean, he's got like a, I mean, this outfit he's wearing, especially the hat. I mean, it's, it's like cartoonish. I don't know. I mean, what's your commentary on this silly nightcap he's wearing? I, 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 (laughs)
1: I don't even know how to react to it it's so fucking goofy. And l- before we go on, okay, because there is a there is a gigantic clusterfuck of chaos and absurdity that that's going on here well beyond Mr. T and his goofy gimmick, which was has to go down as one of the goofiest gimmicks I've ever seen. I I, I won't try to force my view on anybody else. You all have Goofier shit that you probably think is weirder, but this this is right up there for me. But this is about th- we're all. What are we probably three matches into the show? Is this uh, the fourth match?
0: Yeah, we're several in. Yeah,
1: well, yeah, we're several in. We we've, we've probably been on now for about forty five minutes. At this point, maybe a little longer. I'm guessing this is already the sixth appearance of Jimmy Hart. Fucking Jimmy Hart is all over this show. Somehow, Jimmy Hart in his own subtle fashion, that, that, that Memphis shuffle that Jimmy knows so well, has got himself worked into just about every scene in this fucking pay-per-view. And this is one of, at this point, we're probably the fifth or sixth time we've seen Jimmy Hart on the show. By the time this show's over, Jimmy Hart will have had more camera time than just about anybody else on this pay-per-view. How the fuck did that happen?
0: It's a great question. Uh, I don't know how most of this happened. Uh, let's, get, <laughs> let's get to the next match here. We got Sting Wrestling Avalanche, the former Earthquake from the WWF. Uh, Avalanche is introduced as being from Mount Everest, Washington, which Meltzer said, I was expecting they'd announce Sting as being from the Himalayas of New Jersey. Uh, the, <laughs> the match gets a quarter star. Uh you, you probably haven't Dave a, was on fire. Yeah. Dave was funny back then. Silly ref bump here. Sting does the stinger splash on Avalanche, uh, catches the ref uh behind Avalanche, and then uh he puts on the Scorpion. That brings out Kevin Sullivan. Sting beats oh, of up Sullivan. Does.
1: Where's Jimmy Hart? Jimmy Hart's gonna show up here before long, right?
0: Hulk Hogan does eventually limp to the ring with a chair to make the save, just to reinforce that he's our baby face. And I gotta tell you, it is sort of weird. That Hulk Hogan's supposed to be the main event, the world champion, the big deal, the big draw. Normally, he waits and comes out at the very, very end. But for him to come in here early before his match and clean it out with a chair, maybe took away a little bit of the match. What's the? There's no maybe, you know, in the discussion. It was a really, really
1: bad choice. I, I understand the logic of it, and I can understand why somebody who was formatting the show and writing the show would have thought that that was a good idea. There, there is a bit of logic to it. Um, but it was a really poor choice. It was a horrible choice. And what we're going to see is, you know, that pattern repeating itself throughout the show. Other than Jimmy Hart, I think Kevin Sullivan is the only other one that made more appearances on the show than anybody else. Um, we're seeing it in, in, we're seeing too much of that. It, it, it kills the audience. Absolutely. It bores the tears out of them. They've already seen Kevin Sullivan. They've already seen Jimmy Hart. Now they've already seen Hulk Hogan. They got their nut. It's no different. You know, you go out when you're young and you're single, right? When you're young and you're single. And you go out and you meet a really hot girl and you go back to your apartment. Or you go back to her apartment and you have the, t- the night of your life. Well, once you're done, you're kind of done. It's over. You've had all the fun you're going to have, at least for a couple hours, unless there's a Bluetooth involved. Trust me on that one. But for the most part, once you kind of get your fill, <laughs> for lack of a better way of saying it, um, it's kind of, okay, entertain me next. Entertain me some more next. I want to see something different. And to have the same talent, especially somebody like Hulk, Hulk Hogan, who you're trying to get over, who you want the biggest pos- <laughs> you want the biggest pop you can get for. You know, looking back now, 2020 hindsight, especially if you know you're not only you putting Hulk Hogan out there before the main event, you're putting him out there before the main event, diluting any possible reaction you're going to get from him once he comes out for the main event. In the main event that he's working with the butcher, Brutus the Barber Beefcake. Now you know you're swimming upstream. You're not swimming upstream. You're swimming up a jet stream. And, and you make that decision to bring him out early in the show. Really, really bad choice.
0: John Tenta, another Hulk Hogan hire?
1: Um, Yeah, I mean, definitely influenced that decision. Um, not, you know, and it wasn't like, oh, God, do we need a John Tenta or, you know, do, or not even that. Do we need that guy? Do we need that John Tenta? You know, but... Again, myself, Rick, Dusty, Oli, so many people, WWF, you know, we're still, they they believed in those larger than life, you know, monsters, uh, uh, you know, 500 pound guys, you know, somebody, you know, uh, uh, characters that you just wouldn't see in real life normally. That was still, you know, the... The the weapon of choice for both companies. So, yeah, arguably, obviously, to I'm sure even some people at that time. John Tenta had the biggest run he was ever going to get as Earthquake and WWF. And that was over and it was done and it was in his rearview mirror. And WCW was getting leftovers. That was true. But people, Rick, myself, Terry Taylor... Kevin Sullivan, others still believe that those big, huge Kamala, you know, earthquake-type characters still had value. And John was one of the nicest guys in the business, which is another reason so many of the boys – or I don't want to say the boys because i use using that term – so many of the individuals who are part of the creative process – even if they felt like, you know, he's, he's kind of had his time, it's kind of come and gone, but they had such an affinity for him on a personal level that they were willing to take the risk. And that's how John ended up there. Yes, Hulk Hogan was probably the the most significant voice in that choir um, and probably had the most bass in his voice in, in terms of that choir, but there were, a, there were a number of people that were supporting John Tenton, not just Hulk
0: Hogan. All right, it's time. The main event. Or here, Brutus the fucking. Did you Bar- did you did you know i I just want
1: to. I want to post. I just want to put this off as long as possible. Did you notice how dark Michael Buffer's hair was in this shot in 1994? No, I didn't, his I, his his hair was perfect. Go back and look. WWE Network, k '94. Michael Buffer looks like he's 20 years old in this shot.
0: He's not old enough to know how to say Hulkamania, though. He calls Hulk Hogan the king of Hulkmania. There's no "a" in the middle of Hulkamania. It's just Hulkmania. Wow! Even I didn't know that. Which I, which I think we could actually. Well, you know, I don't think anybody owns the trademark to Hulkmania. Good luck with that, brother. <laughs> hey, the, co- the
1: the counterclaim. I can tell you what it, what it's going to be. The counterclaim that you'll be getting once you 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 file for that trademark, the USPTO is going to come back. US Patent and Trademark Office is going to – USPTO.gov, if you want to give it a try, is going to come back, and their finding, their initial finding is going to be that it's confusingly similar, mm. okay? Not enough distinction between the trademark and the proposed trademark in order to justify a new trademark. So that's going to be your first finding. But then you could you could make the decision to, to fight that, in which case you're going to spend a minimum – in my own personal painful most recent experience of about a quarter of a million dollars to try to to, to fight that. Maybe more. And in Hulk's case it would be more because he's gonna he's gonna spend a lot more money to protect it and he would probably get Vince McMahon to support him. So if you wanted to try that, Conrad, be prepared to throw about a half a million dollars up against the wall just to get a fine education in trademark and copyright infringement.
0: You know what stood out to me most on this pay per view? Hmm. how you traded airtime for beef right in the middle of the pay-per-view the biggest pay-per-view of the year you have tony Schiavone and bobby heenan throw to a graphic where you guys thank the stockyard which is a steakhouse in nashville what the fuck was this the best we could do <laughs> <laughs> seriously do you guys go in there and say hey let the guys eat for free and we'll mention you on the pay-per-view what's the fucking deal here
1: yeah the, uh, the deal probably involved cash Probably involved you know them supporting some of our local radio or sponsoring some of our local radio to get audience there. Um, we didn't give it to them for free, and I certainly you know I'm I'm 100% confident we get didn't give it to them. So we all go there after the show and have free steak and beer. Th- there would have been a transaction involved, and it would have been something that would have supported us locally because we still needed that at that time.
0: Let's uh, let's keep moving here. Let's get to what you're trying to avoid. Brutus, the fucking barber beefcake is in the main event. And the storyline here is all of a sudden these masked men start attacking Hulk Hogan whenever he's wrestling Ric Flair. And eventually we get our big payoff at Halloween Havoc 94, where the mysterious masked man, once Ric Flair's good and retired, is revealed as being Brutus, the fucking barber beefcake. And on commentary, Bobby Heenan says something like he's butchered the friendship and after that. Uh, he can't be called Brutus of course. So you guys have had a thousand different names, brother Brutai. He's going to go on to be Zodiac, um, a thousand different names, but right here, he'll be known as the butcher and Brutus has said that Hulk decided to book his participation in this storyline and all the future WCW storylines quote, this could be why I was never really written for by any of the regular WCW writers in any consistent manner. If Hulk had an idea for for me as part of his creative control, that's just what we went with. So chat me up here. How in the world does Brutus the fucking barber beefcake wind up in the main event of the biggest show of the year?
1: Who said that? I'm sorry.
0: Uh, Ed Leslie.
1: So Ed said that Hulk used his creative control. And, and got him positions in WCW that was from Ed Leslie. that wasn't from somebody on the creative team.
0: Wow it's ed Leslie.
1: okay um, it's not untrue. it it unfortunately, it's not untrue. That was one of you know that was one of looking back, you know it was a mistake. it was a horrible mistake. And I know what Hulk's intentions were. Keep in mind, this this is where it's going to be hard for people listening to what I'm going to say to accept it or understand it because they, they can't put themselves in our shoes, in my shoes, at this particular time. This is 1994 and admittedly not going to try to sugarcoat it, avoid it, dance around it. Hulk Hogan, we put a lot into Hulk Hogan. Financially, creatively, business-wise, there was a lot that we bet on Hulk Hogan for for the future of our company. For everybody, from Ted Turner on down. So, part and, and, and Terry's creative control, by the way, had nothing to do with the choices, bad ones, or otherwise that we made with regard to, to Ed Leslie, the reason that Terry Hawk was able to influence creative to the degree that he did for his best friend, Ed Leslie was because we were trying to keep him happy. Not because he was creatively, you know, he was, he had the upper hand creatively. It was never a contentious back and forth. Should we, or shouldn't we, it was the company was rallying around this guy Hulk Hogan there were a number of people that Hulk felt strongly for valid reasons they, they weren't correct but they were valid and there's a difference hulk believed, he never he never brought and and i talked to Terry last, Hulk last night for an hour and a half just catching up you know i know the guy and i i i know him better now than i did then but knowing him as well as I do, if he would have thought for a second that working with his best friend would have hurt him, he wouldn't have done it in a million years. He would have said, sorry, brother, you're my best friend, but that ain't going to (laughs) happen. I mean, Hulk, Hulk was as generous and loyal and accommodating as he was with certain people because he was a good guy. And, and, and he wanted to help his friends. That does not make him a bad person. He, he didn't do it because he didn't care about the outcome or he didn't care about how it was going to affect WCW. And to this case in point, he certainly didn't support or influence um, the idea of working with Ed Leslie in a main event because he didn't care. He did it because he allowed his relationship with Ed Leslie to jade his decision to, to influence and, and, and adversely influence his judgment because it hurt Hulk as much as it hurt WCW. It hurt Hulk more than it hurt WCW because the, the prevailing narrative and to a degree, justifiably so is that Hulk going, is only, he only wants to work with his buddies and make a bunch of money. It wasn't totally true. He, he, he believed, he actually believed that he and Brutus could draw money. Now, if you're Eric Bischoff, who's new to this gig, who's never run a wrestling, I've been around a wrestling at this point for seven years. It wasn't like, you know, I just fell off, you know, a wrestling recruitment truck. I'd been around it for a while, but the creative side of things and and the judgments that go with that was not something I was hundred percent comfortable with. So when I've got Ric Flair, who's being influenced by Hulk Hogan, it just is what it is. When you've got you know, certain people who I'm, you know, Kevin Sullivan, who I'm relying on because they have more experience in the creative side of things than I do. And and they're being influenced by Hulk, you know, and then they're influencing me, you know, and, and in approving certain things. That's how this went on. But I want to make it really clear that it wasn't done out of greed or lack of caring. It just, it Terry, Hulk's judgment was severely clouded based on his personal relationships, but he really believed they could draw money.
0: That's not what I was hoping to hear.
1: What were you hoping to hear brother?
0: No, you're just being honest and forthright. This is not the combative Eric I was hoping for, but I'm not mad about it. I'll tell you this Meltzer didn't hate it, which I was really shocked by. He says this wasn't as bad as I expected with butcher in there. Uh, ultimately of course there's going to be a run in, um, hulk hogan gets the win i don't think that's a surprise one two three the leg drop we're done but after the match hulk hogan is in a bit of a precarious spot because now avalanche is in there kevin sullivan's in there and the butcher's in there and randy savage does a run in and at first it feels like it's going to be four on one they tease that forever randy savage is trying to Play nice with the bad guys, and then he attacks Kevin Sullivan from behind. Then he gets the butcher and Avalanche. Hogan's giving everybody the softest chair shots in the history of wrestling, and then we get an old school 1988 pose down in the ring for the Mega Powers, Hulk Hogan and the Macho Man. Talk to me a little bit about um, the the decision to end it this way, with a Macho Man run in, and instead of having some big confrontation. Which may have drawn money. It certainly is the biggest drawing in WrestleMania, at least up to that point. WrestleMania Five in nineteen eighty nine. Instead, we go the other way, and they're friends. Yeah, I mean,
1: it was it was interesting watching this back last night um, because I did uh, on Patreon, I did part one, the first hour and twenty minutes of the show, or whatever it was, on uh, Wednesday night, and then last night I watched part two, which took us through the finish, and. You know, when I watch on Patreon, when we do watch-alongs, you know, you have to turn the volume down so we don't get sued. So I couldn't hear a lot of the commentary that was going on, but I could figure it out from watching it and just remembering what we were doing at that time. You know, the, the question that we, that we wanted to plant in the audience's mind, and we did that effectively or at least attempted to do it effectively on the, on the Saturday night show the week before, was to, you know, what's going to happen? Are they going to be friends or are they going to be enemies? So you paint that picture of doubt and and nobody really knowing and understanding to hopefully create a tune-in factor for the pay-per-view. And then when I watched it being executed at the very end of this, it I understood what they were trying to accomplish. It was pretty obvious, but it was too subtle. It was too – there wasn't enough Shakespeare in it. The moment could have been – I'd say the moment between Randy and and Hulk it was a it was too drawn out it took too much time and the payoff was a two on, on a scale of one to ten maybe a three it could have been a much bigger moment you know when you, I'm going off in the weeds here just fair warning Go, going back to previous shows when we talked about the launch of Nitro um, one of the things that we did that, that really, really helped me dramatically when it came to creative and understanding the audience or trying to anticipate how an audience might react to something was a ton of research that we did in real time, you know, live research sessions where we would take 30 or 40 You know, hardcore WWF fans at the time. And then we'd take 30 or 40, you know, hardcore WCW fans. We'd separate them as groups. They wouldn't even interact with each other. They wouldn't even know the other group existed. And then we'd find a group of people who were um, uh, formerly fans who used to watch both but don't watch anymore. And then we would treat each of these groups differently in in terms of the questions we asked. You know, why are you a WWE fan, WWF fan? What are the things you like most about it? What are the things you like least about it? What's changed over the last couple of years? Why do you watch more now or less now? Just a whole series of those kinds of questions. And the audiences would be behind, you know, one-way glass or two-way glass, whatever it is. We could see them, but they couldn't see us because it's a one-way mirror, uh, whatever it is. And we would watch them in real time answer these questions from a moderator. They, and the moderator was, you know, a nondescript person. We, we weren't there on behalf of WWE or on behalf of WCW. This was a general research thing. So they didn't, there was no reason for the audience to um, spin their responses because they thought they were saying what WCW wanted to say or they thought what WWF, you know, they were saying what WWF wanted them to say. This was a pretty neutral Uh, approach to research. And then what we would do, and I know this is a long-winded way to answer your question, but please bear with me because I think it's important. One of the things we would do next was we would take these same groups, which they'd be in separate rooms, and we'd put up WWF video. And then each one of these people, there'd be 30 or 40 of them, would, would have a little meter That had a dial on it, and they were instructed, when you see something you like, turn it all the way to the right. If you see something that's boring, kind of put it in the middle. And if you see something you really don't like, turn it all the way to the left. And each one of these meters were wired and configured in such a way that in real time, those of us behind the mirror could watch what they were watching, but their cumulative reactions were charted on a graph over the action as we were seeing it. So we were seeing inside of their minds. We were seeing their real-time, real and personal reactions. You know, Just because I was turning mine to the right doesn't mean Conrad knew it and he was turning his to the left. I mean it was really, really sophisticated research. The takeaway, I mean I got a lot of takeaways from that research because we did it in like six or eight major markets around the United States over the course of a couple months. But that taught me more. Uh, about how audiences felt and what they responded to than just about any conversation I had ever had with any other, you know, head writer, booker, whatever you want to call them. I mean, it really told me at least how to begin to understand the audience and better yet how to anticipate them. And the one takeaway, I'll, I'll never forget this one. And I used it a lot. I probably overused it. But one of the takeaways for me personally was that when wrestling fans watch a match, the buildup, that moment between the two wrestlers coming face to face and the looks on their face and the anticipation and the moments before the actual action are as interesting to the audience as the action itself. It's a and I I used to when I tried to describe that, you know, to my creative team after I got more involved in booking for Nitro, I, I to 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 paint the picture. I mean, I understood it intellectually, I knew what it meant to me, but to articulate it and to try to share it in a way that was effective, I said it's no different than the old Westerns or even new ones. You know, that moment when your two you know your antagonist and your protagonist, your good guy, your bad guy, you know, decide to finally meet at noon, you know, in the in the middle of the street and have a gunfight. Those dramatic moments where the cameras cut away to each each gunfighter's eyes, and you see, you know, the fly land on a guy's ear and he's too afraid to reach for it because he might get shot. I mean, those moments leading up to to the ultimate action are what wrestling fans responded to the most. The tension. The drama, they loved that. And I think that looking back at that's what I thought about when I watched this on Patreon last night is if I had the opportunity to produce that scene again, I would have sucked way more life and entertainment out of those final moments because as it was, it was almost subtle. It was like, oh, okay, well, they're going to be friends. But it was so subtle and so non-dramatic that a lot of money was left on the table in that scene.
0: Well, when you get backstage, you guys are ready to draw some more money. Uh, Meltzer would even say easily the highlight of the show, where in the post match in the babyface dressing room, Big Van Vader and Harley Race come out and challenge Hogan to a match. And I mean, I think that sort of gives you an idea of what we're in store for for 1995. And we know they're going to headline Super Brawl, and we're off to the races. The next big show after this is going to be in Las Vegas in January for a Clash of the Champions. Um, Meltzer would say overall, this show was an easily forgettable, nearly three hours after the show, someone brought up the subject of the first Starcade back in 1983 and how well they remembered it. The funny thing was 30 minutes after this show was over, I still remembered more about Starcade 83 than this show. I wouldn't call it the worst pay-per-view show ever, but it's certainly in the bottom five or 10%. And, uh, the readers of the wrestling observer agreed. It only got 9% thumbs up. It got 79% thumbs down and 11% thumbs in the middle. Almost unanimously. Everybody thought it was nasty boys in Harlem. Heath who had the match of the show and the worst match without question, as Tony Schiavone would say was Mr. T and Kevin Sullivan. Do you disagree with any of that?
1: Nope. I really don't.
0: It, it,
1: it was horrible. It really was horrible with the exception of the Mr. T Kevin Sullivan match, which was so horrible. It was entertaining for me. Um, Now it's entertaining for me now in, in, in the context of I'm here 24 years later watching something that doesn't affect my life anymore. So it's easy for me to laugh at it, but you know, it was horrible. And I think this, this might've been the worst pay-per-view I was associated with. Maybe, I don't know. I'll have to go back and look at a bunch of them, but this is, I agree with Dave Musser. i put him over.
0: Believe it or not, it could have been worse, according to Wade Keller. He says, an inside source says Hogan was originally scheduled to lose the belt to Butcher and then have Butcher defend against Savage, perhaps as early as the Clash of the Champions. Hogan was going to drop the belt mainly to offset criticism that he's not a company man, which I think is kind of fun. Uh, Hogan, since then, had Associates leak word of the title change to everyone possible, and as a result... Has vetoed the idea of dropping the title because, quote, too many people know about it ahead of time. Uh, before you fucking have an aneurysm, even I think that sounds a little too conspiracy theorist from our good putty, Mister White Keller.
1: It's insane. I mean, I mean, that's right up there with me, you know, wanting to fight Davy Boy Smith in an argument over European money. It's just, it's just nonsense, you know. It's what people needed to write at the time. To keep people interested in what they had to say every week because that's what they were selling and, and making, you know, making their audience believe that they were getting some inside information that was exclusive and, and nobody else had. But it was not true. It's just – I can't even get mad at it anymore. I really can't. It's getting to the point now when you read this stuff back to me, it's so ridiculous and so obvious. And if anybody really spent any time really thinking about it, some of these statements themselves, you know, they dispel themselves, but whatever it's, it's silly.
0: We're wrapping up 1994 here, of course. And Meltzer would say supposedly WCW's losses this year are cut to three and a half million as opposed to the five to 6 million for previous years. But that figure is misleading because Hogan's salary comes from the Turner Home Entertainment Ledger rather than the WCW ledger. Fucking and, wrong. And Hogan, between salary and bonuses and percentages, should earn no less than two point seven million and probably considerably higher for his six months. So the real losses are the highest ever. Wrong. But, okay. Look, some of the stuff that's so silly when it's
1: wrong, like the, the previous nonsense that you reported. I yeah, whatever. Harmless, silly shit. This is a lie. This is somebody pretending they know something they don't know in order to justify a statement that is totally false. This is just bullshit. Turner, Hogan's money came out of WCW's budget. End of fucking conversation. There was no shell game going on. We weren't allocating You know, Hogan money from another division of Turner Broadcasting. I can tell you a fucking million reasons why that would never happen. But we weren't allocating, as is implied here, you know, Hulk's revenue or salary or expense in this case uh, from another division so WCW didn't have to report it. That is fraudulent fucking bullshit.
0: Well, coming in hot. I'm going out hot. I came in hot and I'm going out hot. Well, it is fun because, uh, there's a lot of transition happening here in the company. Obviously WCW had uh, a banner year in 1994. Hulk Hogan has changed the game and we're going to cover Starcade 1995 next year. And that has a heavy new Japan influence. Mouser would report around the same time here at the end of 94 the cruiserweight tournament has been delayed for a while because nobody has gotten their act together as far as bringing an outside talent with Eric Bischoff in Japan this week for the Tokyo dome. It's expected he'll request one or two wrestlers like Otani or in Benoit. And they have a verbal deal with Pena to send in two wrestlers. Pena is looking in to sending Estrada and Guerrero, Eddie Guerrero, but I hear Bischoff doesn't want Guerrero, which is interesting to say the least. Next week, we're going to cover Starcade 1995, and this one, I feel like, sort of slips under the radar. You know, we haven't talked a ton about New Japan Pro Wrestling here on the show, but man, we are just all over it with that one. Jushin Liger's there. Uh, we've got Benoit there. Chono's there. Saito's there. Otani, Guerrero, Tenzon, Sasaki. Tons of New Japan talent, and that's what we're going to be covering next week. What do you anticipate for Starcade 1995 next week?
1: I think it's going to be a really, I mean, the show has the potential, and I know, you know, you and your team are going to do a great job of bringing the details and the history and, you know, great topics for us to dig into, but this was a transitional, this was a very transitional moment. This set, this, this period of time set us up for so much of the success we were going to go on to have later in 95, 96, and 97, so I'm I'm really looking forward to this. There's a lot of there's a lot to talk about. We're going to spend a lot of time in the weeds, so I hope you're ready.
0: Yeah, it's going to be fun, man. We're just a few months into Nitro when this show happens, and you know we know the influence that the cruiserweights are going to have there, and this talent roster is just super loaded. That's going to be next Monday here on 83 Weeks. We're not skipping a week for the holidays, but I know what you need to be doing next Monday. You need to be right here listening to Starcade 1995 on 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff.